Last week, we discussed folklore as a gauge for the values of the society that created them. Today, today we get more specific. A babysitter receives menacing phone calls. And upon investigating them, she realizes that they are originating from an upstairs bedroom. The very room where she's left the children under her care to sleep. Now, who's heard this before, hmm? Well, that really happened to a girl in my hometown. Oh, yes. I'm sure it did. I'm, I'm sure most of you grew up thinking that this happened to girls in, in all your hometowns, but it didn't. You see, the babysitter and the man upstairs is what we call an urban legend. Contemporary folklore passed on as a true story. There are variations of this. Hello again to all of our beautiful listeners out in the world, and welcome to an all-new episode of the Thumb Effect Podcast. As we enter to the final month of the year, I'm very excited because today... We're going to be talking about a really cool slasher film from that late 90s scream era in horror. 25 years ago, first-time director Jamie Blanks presented a scary movie with a very unique basis for its slasher formula. An original one at that. And don't even get me started on this cast of who's who actors and actresses, which was pretty impressive even back then. It's a film that I know is going to spark various conversations during our breakdown, so without wasting any more time, I'm Ed. And I'm Corey. And this is Urban Legend. Last week, we discussed folklore. Today, we get more specific. This is what we call an urban legend. Contemporary folklore passed on as a true story. Something you might have heard about mixing pop rocks and soda. Supposedly, your stomach and your intestines burst. Voila, still alive. Mr. Ross, please. He's going to explode! Somebody call 911! <laughs> they are the legends we've all heard. Gang members drive around at night with their headlights off. And when someone goes to flash from their high beams to warn them, they kill them. The stories we've all told. A guy and a girl, and they're parked out in the woods. Yeah, the guy steps out, and the girl starts to hear these scratching noises. It's her dead boyfriend hung from a tree. The tales we've all listened to. <laughs> Isn't there another story about a guy with an axe hiding in a woman's back seat? My mom still checks the back seat before getting into a car. But just because it never happened doesn't mean it never will. The decapitated body was found in her car. I knew I should have gone to NYU. This girl, she could have been any one of us. What if there is a lunatic on campus? What is he gonna do next, huh? Maybe put spider eggs in Bubblicious? <laughs> the idea of an urban legend serial killer. It's a stretch. The call's coming from inside the house. Could it be an urban legend? <laughs> I can help you with. 
all these urban legends and making them reality. Urban legend. Have you heard the one about the microwave? In Urban Legend, a college student suspects a series of bizarre deaths are connected to certain urban legends. So I'm going to start things off here by saying that I cannot believe it's been 25 years since the release of this movie. I mean, 1998 was a great year in general, but by the time this was released, it was just a crazy era after Scream when horror was attempting to make its, you know, to get back its momentum that it lost after the 80s. I think the main problem this time is that most of the genre films released were too clean. Like, I, I think that hurt in a sense because horror is supposed to be raw and dirty. It's meant to be in your face. It's supposed to be relentless. Pretty much every slasher film released had all these model actors posing together for the film's posters. And they were filmed to look like every other big Hollywood release. It just wasn't the same as the 80s. But then Urban Legend came out and it sort of changed the way horror was supposed to be. I say this because of the film's standout concept that sounds like it came straight out of the 80s. The killer's wearing an over-the-top get-up to kill. The killers themselves are unapologetic. I'm pretty excited to be talking about this movie today, I gotta tell you. But Coy, what are your earliest memories of Urban Legend, and would you agree that all those slasher films from the Scream era, <clears throat> this one stands out as trying to be something else? Yeah, I mean, obviously, everything that came out after Scream is trying to at least cash in or somewhat be, uh, you know, somewhat like Scream. And I would say this movie has a little bit of that. Um, but, you know, I enjoyed the movie. So this is one. It, it isn't one of my favorites. I mean, I remember seeing it when it was new. Um, you know, so I, I saw it back then. I haven't seen it in a long time uh, since. So that's why I was actually interested in doing the episode. Uh, was to give it a rewatch because I really don't think I've seen this movie in probably 15 to 20 years. So It had been uh, a while for me, but not that long. I'd say the last time I watched this before last night was about five years ago, maybe. Yeah, so I was interested to uh, revisit it. I always remember liking it, uh, but I just kind of wanted to see if it held up. Um, so, you know, it it's not one of my favorites, but I, I still think it was it's pretty respectable uh, from what I've seen. But yeah, I mean, you know, Scream really just reinvigorated everything in the mid 90s. I mean, you know, it it, it takes me back to such a time like it, that's one of the main things I like about this movie. It's just like a time machine going back. And for anybody <laughs> yeah. our age or older, you know, that's into horror is going to remember that time, whether you remember it fondly or not, you know, because I know some, you know, horror stalwarts that are there, you know, might not like the Scream era. But, you know, I was a teenager. We were teenagers then. So, of course, mm -hmm. I look back at it fondly. You know, was there shit? Yeah, there was shit at all times in horror. So, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't point that out. But, um, yeah, it, it just takes me back to the early 2000s when I was uh, younger, dumber, but, uh, you know, had a good time watching horror. So, yeah, it was, it was a pleasure revisiting. What Scream did was it opened up the gateway for other horror films because studios were willing to give horror a chance again because prior to 96 when scream came out a lot of the horror movies that would you'd assume was going on the big screen i mean some of them still were there were still 
Hellraiser and Halloween sequels from Dimension Merrimax that were released theatrically. But all in all, there were a lot of direct-to-video sequels um, because it just went away. After the 80s, when it kind of fizzled out, they just they stopped producing them because horror was making less and less. Less and less people were turning out in the theater. So they, it, they were making the money in the direct-to-video market because... You know, in the home video market, rather, because you know it's a lot better. It's a lot easier going to your mom and pop video store on a Friday night and renting horror movies because that's what people still we're still doing. I mean, that's just something that has never stopped. Uh, you know, yeah. I think I can speak for everyone collectively when I say like, you go to the video store <laughs> back when they were around. You know, this time they were obviously. You're going to the horror section, you know, whether you're a fan or not. What I'm getting at is, Scream came out, made so much money, and it it just gave filmmakers and producers and, and studio companies, you know, a reason to put these out, and th- that's what happened again. It wasn't as crazy as the '80s. I mean, I've talked about it time and time before how '81 alone there were like 50 horror films that came out that year collectively. Every week there's a different one. It wasn't insane like that, but you you could see a big you know difference in, in the genre at, at that time and it lasted a good while it lasted about it had a good five or six year run but then again it fizzled out like it usually does and it's come back recently obviously but you know that's the thing about horror it comes and goes um and we always often remember it from these eras like we're talking about this scream era as we're dubbing it and you know in the 80s was the slasher era so you know, it's fun. I, I love the genre so much, obviously. It's celebrated so much on this podcast alone. But anyway, let's uh, talk about our first-time viewings. Oh, my goodness. I remember the first time I saw that picture. I thought it was just wonderful. So, I'm going to let you go first. I just, you know, had a lot to say. So, I'll let you have the mic for this one uh, first. What was your first-time experience? Oh, I know it wasn't with me. I actually, I actually have a story for this one. But uh, how about you, man? Yeah, I didn't see it in theaters. It was definitely a rental. Um, I don't remember specifically renting it or who I watched it with. I just remember popping it at home. Uh, like I said, I liked it. I, I remember it was enjoyable, but I, I wouldn't say I really had a memorable first watch. Um, and then I do remember re-renting it when I worked at the video store a couple years later. I do remember that because I think one of the sequels had came out. Um, uh, yeah, Final like, Cut. Yeah, I think one of the sequels had came out, so I watched that in the sequel. So mm-hmm. th- those are like my first couple viewings, and I honestly don't know if I had seen it since then, like since I worked at the video store. That's why I said 15, 20 years. So, Fair uh, yeah, it, it's just, I know there's plenty of sequels. I don't think I've seen any of them outside of like maybe the first one or two, just because it wasn't, you know, one of my things. But yeah, I, I remember seeing... The first one is a rental, and it was a fine enough Friday night or whatever it was when I watched it. So, yeah, I had seen this opening night, and you know how on weekends or whatever, you know, with you and I, usually either my grandmother or your mother would take us to the theater and buy our ticket for the R-rated movies and then, you know, come back a couple hours later. Well, the theater, my local theater was starting to crack down in 98 around this time of release, and 
you, the parent, the guardian had to be there in the theater. Actually, they had to purchase a ticket to, and watch it with you. Yeah. And kind of found this out the hard way. Um, my mom went in, and and I'll never forget this because it was like Friday night at the movie theater back then was crazy, and it was a madhouse. It's not like it is today in theaters, obviously, but. And I remember, like, my mom doesn't do well with crowds in general. And my brother was with her. And Andrew, you know, Andrew, you know, like, <laughs> Christ, back at, when this came out, he was nine. And so she, you know, of course, was dragging him along. And she goes inside to get our ticket. And they're, you know, yeah, I remember this very well now. Because the first show we were intending to go, to go see was sold out. So we had to go see another show, the next show, which was like two hours later or whatever. And she had to buy a ticket and see it with us. So yeah, a month prior to this, me, Andrew, and her had seen Halloween H2O together. So she wasn't planning on spending her Friday night seeing the new horror film, but that's what happened. So me, her, Andrew, and my buddy Ian went... You know, she, she got four tickets, and we saw this thing. And I remember very well, we got into the theater, and it was slam-packed. Another sold-out screening. And we got there a little bit too late to where the four of us could not sit together. I remember my mom and Andrew sat in, like, the one of the front three rows. And me and Ian ended up splitting up and sitting, like, you know, up closer to the top, the, the, the uh, top of the... Uh, Olympic Stadium seating or whatever it was. <laughs> Olympic Stadium? <laughs> stadium seating. That's what they call it. They call it stadium seating, damn it. Because I was a new thing back then. Because prior to that, all, all the fears were like kind of flat. So, and so we, I saw it split up, you know, with next to a bunch of strangers. And it was great. And I'll never forget, coming out of the theater, my mom said, that was a lot better than Halloween H2O. <laughs> <laughs> I can, you know, just hearing this story as someone who personally knows Miss Patty, uh, your mom, yeah. uh, I can just imagine your mom having comments the entire time of this process. <laughs> oh, dude, she wasn't, she was pissed. She was pissed. But then she ended up seeing the movie and she enjoyed it. So thank God for that. <laughs> just, yeah, I can imagine that now. <laughs> dude, it was wild. It was a fun night, though. It's one of those events that I'm never, I'm never going to forget. She was just like, she went from one extreme to another. She went from stressed out, pissed off, you know, had to drag my kid brother Andrew around to, ah, that wasn't half bad. So no, I, just one thing, I, you know, not to go on too much of a tangent, but I remember the crackdown uh, because obviously this was right before we were old enough to buy our own tickets. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it, just how stupid and annoying that whole thing was like okay you have the guardian there to buy the ticket like obviously they're consenting like you right. know I, why they have to go the whole process and see it with them it's like i, I don't know why do like, they have to go through the movie that they clearly don't want to see it's i know why the obvious answer is money and i can under even understand like limits like okay maybe one parent or guardian can only buy like two or three tickets or four tickets or something so you don't have one parent buying like a whole group of teen you know tweens tickets you know i would kind of even understand something like that but i i just remember uh it was a clerk or somebody at the movie theater trying to talk my mom into talk her out of buying us tickets for half-baked me and uh our my our buddy andy 
Uh, I remember. Mets. Um, yeah, Mets. I remember the guy was like trying to talk my mom out of buying tickets. She's like, you know what this movie's about, right? Like, you know what happens. And my mom's like, are you going to sell me the tickets or not, lady? Like, right, right. I don't care. Yeah, I can, see, I can see Miss Becky right now just like kind of like awkwardly smirking like, okay, um, it's like, I don't still intending on buying this ticket, so you're yeah. going to shut up now? I, th- I think she literally said something to the effect of like, I've raised my son properly. I don't right, think this right. movie's going to ruin him. Let let them see the movie. <laughs> I don't think Half-Baked is going to, you know, change your mind forever. Yeah, so anyway, not to go on a tangent, but nowadays you can just, <laughs> you just walk well, right in. I mean, obviously I I'm middle-aged now, so no one's going to check my ID, but I see, like, tweens just walk right into theaters well, nowadays. remember the Jane Solid Bob Straight Backward deal? Oh, yeah, 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 we got kicked out, yeah. Because I had just turned 17, so clearly, you know, I was of age where I could buy my own ticket, and we all were in the th- at the theater. I mean, granted, at the time, you look back in hindsight, it, I was trying to get, you know, tickets for, like, five people because it was you, Mets, his brother, Daiquiri. There was, like, four or five other people besides me, and they were, like, not having it. I ended up, like, I ended up buying all the tickets, like, from, like, a different person. Somehow, you all ended up in the theater, and then, like, five yeah, we minutes later, the staff came, and they were, like... No, you guys got to come out or something. I, I ended up seeing the movie, but I, I forgot what happened at the end of that. Like, I, you guys might have went somewhere else, but I, I remember that woman or that guy coming in like very distinctly. Like, no, <laughs> I'm like, dude, I've already bought the ticket. You got, we're gonna go through this whole like refund process. Like, this is so stupid. It's fucking Jay and Silent Bob for Christ's sake. Ah, oh, man, memories. Anyway. Let's move on to the next category. Let's talk about the financial part of the film. Box office receipts. Get receipts. Uh, So the film premiered on September 23rd, 1998 at the Fox Village Theater in Los Angeles before being released two days later on September 25th, 1998 from TriStar Pictures. Opening up in 2,257 screens. Third place opening weekend, $10.5 million. Second weekend, not a bad drop off, thirty six point two percent, thirty six point two percent, which again, not bad for a horror film. Six point seven million dollars total gross. I was kind of, I did a double take when I saw this total gross figure, seventy two point five million dollars against a fourteen million dollar budget. I didn't know this movie made that kind of money. Yeah, that's pretty big. I mean, you're yeah. also talking, um, you know, nineteen ninety eight money. Like, I mean. Nowadays, yeah, yeah, but that still. No, that's great. That's what I'm yeah, saying. No. Like, nowadays, even nowadays, that wouldn't be bad. You know, for, you no. know, for 78 in today's I mean, money. So let alone a 98 money. It's like almost double. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I can understand. Now I understand where Final Cut came from. You know, I didn't know this, this movie garnished that much money. It's pretty impressive, to be honest with you. So yeah. there you have it. 98 Harvest still going strong, baby. All right, let's move on to our pre-dive top five. Rob, it's your turn. Okay, I'm feeling kind of basic today. Top five side ones, track ones. Janie Jones, Clash from The Clash. Mm. Let's get it on, Marvin Gaye from Let's Get It On. Nirvana, Smells Like Teen Spirit off of Nevermind. Oh, no, Rob, that's not obvious enough. Not at all. How about uh, Point of No Return on Point of No Return? Lewis, so you can uh, get up... Shut up, shut up. (laughs) White Light, White Heat. 
Velvet Underground. Okay, that would be on my list. Though and not on mine. Massive Attack, No Protection. The song is Radiation Ruling. And I thought it was only fitting that we do top five favorite films with ridiculously disguised killers. Oh, this is going to be fun. I have two honorable mentions. Valentine, the baby face killer, and uh, the Prowler. Which is a generic, you know, old school, like gas mask, get up. This combat gear, it's 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 boring, but it's also kind of creative. Anyway, there's only one or two. Uh, number five for me though is Curtains. You ever seen Curtains? It's an early '80s horror film. No, never seen it. With a uh, killer in this creepy old lady mask with this wig attached to it with gray hair. It's, it's really creepy. Just look it up on Google, kids. Curtains from I think '81 or '82. But that mask, it's just, it lives in my head rent-free because it's just a really creepy mask. Yeah, I, I had to throw that on there, though. That's number five. Um, what do you, buddy? All right, so I read the top five wrong, <laughs> so we're going to be an interesting top five here. So I wait, guess wait, wait, I, what'd you do? I read it wrong, so I just glanced, I guess I glanced at it wrong. So I What'd you think read, I said? I... I didn't real. I didn't read the word films. I read top five ridiculously disguised villains. So that's what I based my list off of. I don't okay. actually like a lot of these movies. <laughs> okay. So it's gonna be a little different for me. A so, little bit. Uh, so my number five is Uncle Sam. Uh, I don't know if you remember this movie. <laughs> oh, I remember direct- this movie very well. Robert yeah. Foster, baby. Yeah, Robert Foster. Uh, it had the cool lenticular cover. Um, it was yeah. you know one of the mid 90s directed video yep it was a mid 90s directed video horror movie and it's just this ridiculous fourth of july slasher where the guy comes back to life yep he talks crazy kind of like billy from uh christmas yep and he has like the ridiculous uncle sam get up on and uh, it's really (laughs) cheesy but it it, you know i find it enjoyable so that's why i put it number five I mean, it's the same, you know, same thing. Villain, killer. Anyway, number four for me, though, is a tie. It's not really a tie. Well, it is actually, technically. But it's I put it on there as a tie because it's the same kind of killer. It's Slaughter High and the house on Sorority Row. The, the, the common thing between the two is that the, the killer's an adjuster get up. It's, it's pretty ridiculous, to be honest with you. But they're kind of similar costumes. Um, they're both jesters, obviously, like I just said. But I'd be remiss if I didn't put that on there. So, one to you. All right, so my next one, as far as ridiculously um, dressed, is The Pledges. Have you seen the 2019 Black Christmas movie, the remake? <laughs> Have I seen it? No. Have I heard okay. about it? Yes. All right, don't see it. Because it's god awful. <laughs> like the movie's terrible. Oh, I know. I read a, like, a, a run through of the film and I'm like, yeah, uh, I'm not missing act- much. As a big fan of the original, uh, I have the Screen Factory of the original, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Same slasher here. classic. As a big fan of that, it's a huge slap in the face. You know, I would even say it's a huge step down in quality from what was it, the 2006 remake? I hey, forget what year that came I out. I like that remake. I think I that do one's pretty like fun. that remake. I think it's fun. I don't think yes. it's really much anything like the original other than a, you know, a, a few concepts. They've got similarities, but it's nothing like this 2019 one, which just, no, they share the same name and that's it. No, it, it's just, it's a comment on modern culture and just modern filmmaking. But the, 
just it's not memorable at all and that's why i put it on the list all the quote-unquote pledges in the movie are just wearing like black with black masks and it's just so bland and ridiculous and it just stood out to me like when i'm thinking about this because i love the first two i mean i love the original black christmas and i even like the early aughts remake but this one it just it was infuriating and i just remember holding my head and i'm just like they couldn't even come up with something good for them to wear oh man it was bad yeah don't watch it don't spend your time it's not even worth hate watching it's the worst kind of bad just boring and it beats you over the head with its stupid message as someone who's currently playing the resident evil 4 remake for the third time and i'm in the castle currently like a lot of them like people you shoot at like the, the, the i don't know oh they, yeah i, I know, know what you're talking the about the ritual guys whatever like they're they're wearing yeah. like cloaks just like that and i'm, I'm yeah. thinking of that game right now so yeah. uh number three though is this film urban legend i mean there's something about a killer going around with a parka that's just <laughs> really ridiculous and i you know it's it hence the uh the topic at bay here so yeah how about you man all right so my next one is it's laughably bad honestly i watched this movie and laughed uh it's the snowman killer from the snowman uh the terrible terrible michael fassbender movie uh from what did it come out like five years ago something like that yeah i Um, i I was gonna go see it when it first came out but i didn't and i've heard terrible things so i have never seen it <laughs> yeah it looked okay upon release so it, it it got me i i you know i i heard it got bad reviews but i still watched it but yeah i started chuckling out loud when the killer comes on it if you haven't seen it google it don't see the movie it, movie's just forgettable it's honestly not even i mean it's bad but it's not even like the worst it's just forgettable but uh google the killer's face it's pretty hilarious it, <laughs> it's bad Hang on a sec. I'm looking at it. <laughs> I, I'm really curious. To... Yeah, it, it it's like this is like supposed to be like a serious whodunit movie. Oh my god! Whoa, that's a real thing. Okay, yeah, it is. Holy shit! Holy shnikes! Imagine my surprise. <laughs> wow. Okay, so on the number two though, Stage Fright, one of my favorite Italian slashers, came out in '87. And um, it's a killer uh, just preying on this cast of this this musical. And he's wearing this oversized owl head mask. And it's just the craziest <laughs> fucking thing ever. I've seen parts of that movie. <laughs> oh, I love that movie so much. It sounded vaguely familiar, the, yeah. That, that, that get up, dude. That that's that's I had to put that on this list, so yeah, it's and I had to put it on their high. So number two is stage fright. How about you, man? Uh, so my number two um is Cupid from Valentine. I was never a big fan yeah. of that mask. I thought it looked kind of silly. I yeah. think a very I think a I think there's a nugget in there. I think a variation of it could have worked, but I think the one they went with uh was just. Like, the bleeding, like, the killer bleeding out of the mask wasn't a bad idea. I didn't mind that. But, um, I, yeah, the mask itself, yeah, I, I thought it was laughable. I don't know. You know, maybe your brother be mad at me, I'm saying that, but <laughs> I think it's laughable. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, number one. So this is kind of a, a three-in-one. Uh, Terror Train, the original Jamie Lee Curtis one. 
So you got the killer going around wearing, for those of you who have never seen it, killers, you know, killing people on this uh, college kids on this train. It's like a New Year's Eve event or whatever. and uh, Very odd setup. Yeah, yeah. It's like a party on a train, New Year's Eve. That's your setup. There's a killer on board and Jamie Lee Curtis. So the first getup that the killer's wearing is this Groucho Marx mask. Uh, full with the, the dress and everything or a, a suit and everything and then he kills someone wearing a lizard man yeah it's like a costume ball on New Year's Eve that's right and then he's wearing this lizard costume so he's like lizard man after he kills this guy <laughs> wearing the same costume Cause he's killing people wearing costumes and then taking them and then the third and final uh costume that this person's wearing is this like creepy old man thing where he's got an axe and he's got like a bulb it's 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 kind of like the old woman from curtains but so yeah so i you know i had to put that obviously number one because of the fact that you know it's three creepy fucking costumes in one film so not a great film i mean it's 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 iconic in its own right because you know early 80s Jimmy Lee Curtis Canadian slasher film it's often remembered for the fact that it has David Copperfield and for the fact that the killer is wearing these various costumes throughout the movie so that's my number one on to you Cor uh, real quick that's when I gotta rewatch. I've seen it but it's been a long time yeah it's been yeah, about here- 10 years for me Hearing you list the costumes off it brought flashes back <laughs> into my memory I'm like I gotta rewatch that movie now um, but anyway, my number one, um, perhaps one of my most hated horror movies in recent memory, um, and that's Smiley from the movie Smiley. Are you familiar with this movie? I'm at all? familiar with the movie. There's you, you, you're not going to get me to sit down and watch it. <laughs> no, you, you shouldn't watch it. I, I watched it just kind of like as a joke because I had seen things about it online, so I thought maybe just like hate watching it was a good idea. But honestly, <laughs> right. it wasn't even worth that. So, you know, it it's a basic premise, like, there's a killer that can be summoned through the internet, and it had, this movie has, like, a ton of early 2010 YouTube stars in it, um, and just watching it, it's just trash, like, the, the smiley killer, it's terrible, the <laughs> movie is terrible, it literally, there's, they try to make, I did it for the lulls, scary. Like, come on, man. Like, that's, that's like the call did line. Did like, you know, like, Wow. I did it for the lulls, and, um, oh, God, I can't remember the actor's name that's in it. Um, he's, like, a legit actor that was, like, in some decent horror movies, and <laughs> he's just, like, the villain, mm. and it's just laughable. I mean, it, it, it's the worst kind of bad, honestly. I was hate watch. That was his name, Roger Bart. Yeah, he he turns out to be. The oh villain. yeah, I knew Roger Bart from um, Roger Hostel Part yeah. Two. Yeah, he's and been a bunch in, of other uh, stuff. He's been in a bunch of good stuff, and he's yeah. in this piece of shit. And I, you know, I'm spoiling. I don't normally spoil movies. I'm going to spoil fucking Smiley. He's the villain in it, and uh, he's like the professor, <laughs> and turns out to be the villain. And yeah, it's just terrible. I was like, dude, I hope the paycheck was good because <laughs> this movie <laughs> fucking sucks. And so, and the killer's just kind of ridiculous looking at it. So yeah, don't don't waste your time. It's not even like one of those you can watch just ironically. Yeah, smiley. But just the killer does stand out. The disguise it does stand out to me. It's just ridiculous. 
Yeah, Roger Bard from Midnight Meat Train and yeah, How yeah, I Met Midnight Your Mother. Yeah. I like All Midnight right. Meat Train. Let's get the film effect right down. Hello again, friends. This is the Film Effect Podcast. Good morning, Film Effect. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's the end of the game right there. That's World War Three. Fucking hot recording right now. I literally never wanted to punch me in its face more than I have last night. Definitely worth your time. It's it's definitely worth revisiting. Fifteen minutes in, I'm like, uh, Dorothy, we're not in Oakland anymore. It's in 4K, buddy. Check it out. So, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Starting with cast and crew run-through. All right. Kicking off, got Jared Letter starring as Paul Gardner, the reporter for this college campus. Um, I mean, Jared Leto, obviously, singer for 30 Seconds to Mars, as well as just a slew of movies. You look back at his filmography, uh, my earliest... Uh, I'm trying to think... Was it? I mean, Requiem for a Dream for. I mean, other than this movie, Requiem no, for a Dream for me. For me, it would be um, my so-called life on MTV. That would be the earliest thing I would see him in. And then I remember he was also in the film Switchback with Dennis Dennis Quaid and and uh, Danny Glover. And then this film, obviously, and then Fight Club and Girl Oh yeah, Fight Club. That's right. Yeah, American Fight Club. Psycho. So many movies, dude. I'm not gonna go through his filmography. I'm just, you know, blonde in Fight Club. He's blonde that he had no eyebrows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that. I mean, it's it's you know, Jared Leto. He's one of the most hated celebrities in the industry, if you ask me. Honestly, I was gonna bring this up. Like, if you watch it, like if somebody is watching this, like in today, Uh and you didn't know anything about this movie, I feel like instantly seeing Jared Leto would lead you to believe he's the killer. (laughs) <laughs> just for no yeah. other reason he's kind of douchey and people don't like him yeah obviously i mean you know he's got you know red herring intentions well, not intentions yeah, I, but I mean, uh, elements back then, yeah back then he was set up as that but i feel like instantly like as soon as you start the movie you see jared leto and you're like <laughs> oh he's probably the fucking killer <laughs> right right and then we got alicia witt as the final girl natalie simon she is I mean, we'll talk about the performance as we get to the the, the, the film discussion. But uh, as for his her career, I mean, it goes back to Dune, the original Dune from '84, and then Four Rooms, and, she, I, and then her career. She has a weird career. The last thing I've ever seen her in personally was Cecil B. Demented from John Waters, and that was not long after this movie. She kind of like. I don't want to say went away because I'm looking at her filmography right here and, you know, she's she's an actress who just puts things out here and there. I mean, not a lot, a whole lot to say when it comes to Lucy with, to be honest with you. I don't really have any connections to her besides this movie, honestly. Anything else, you know, you wanted to add? No, not really. I mean, other than the fact that, like, this is a pretty star-studded cast for, like, you know, in the late 90s, you know, as far as like teens go, I mean, obviously Jared Leto's starting out, uh, Joshua Jackson in there, Michael Rosenbaum, I'm a huge fan of him uh, from Smallville. Um, so yeah. Playing, uh, God, what was his name? I know he's a Luther in Smallville. No, he's, oh, he is Lex Luthor. That's right. I, dad, say, I, don't, I don't even watch the show and I know that. No, but there was his dad as Linus Luthor. Yeah, I get those mixed up all the time. 
But um, yeah, he was a good Lex Luthor. He does a lot of good voice work too nowadays. Rosenbaum does. I like his podcast um, into you. Yeah. So and then um, or gosh, inside oh, Tara of you. Reed. That's what it's called. Yeah, Tara Reed. Uh, you know, I, I'll say this: like she got weird looking later on, but Tara Reed, I always had a big crush on her back in the early days, like American Pie. This, this. Big Lebowski. Big Lebowski. Yeah, the early days, she was hot. Like it's a shame she kind of ruined it for herself by doing whatever. She's not that she looking today. He, not she, today, but she she went through a phase. I mean, yeah, like, obviously, that's what alcohol and drugs are gonna do to you. You know. Yeah. Just call it what and it plastic is. Surgery. <laughs> well, I mean, that's just kind of like a thing in Hollywood to be honest with you it never really went away <laughs> uh, Rebecca Gayhart the Noxima girl <laughs> as they say yeah yeah um, she was another one that popped up in a lot of things in the early age, uh, or the, the, the mid to late 90s like remember her also popping up in uh, Nothing to Lose you ever seen Nothing yeah. to Lose oh you've seen Nothing to Lose oh, I'm yeah. Big Beam <laughs> and I, then, love, uh, I love that know. movie yeah, we got to give a shout out to the horror icons in there too: Robert England, uh, Brad Dorf, Brad both Dorf. Uh, small parts but memorable. Freddie and Chucky. Yep, together in one movie. You know, you say it's funny you say a small part when it comes to Robert England, but I feel like Robert England's role. <sighs> we'll talk about it. More, put a pin on that. Uh, you got to bring up Loretta Devine. You got to bring oh, up. I love her. John Neville. John Neville he from um, Bond Bond, Bond Bond what the hell is it The Adventures of Bond Baron Bond Bond what the fuck is that I don't know I, I can't pronounce it but listeners you know what I'm talking about the, 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 the Bond I don't know it's not oh, Baron Baron Munchausen. Munchausen. yes thank you thank you Robin Williams is the fucking moon yeah yeah Danielle Harris another horror icon Julian Richens from the wrong turn series or at least the first one was he in the second one no just the first one he was three finger and run out the <laughs> cast you got our opening death of Natasha Gregson Wagner she's kind of a not, I'm not, I don't want to say a funny name but we'll, we'll get to her in, in a moment but right now let's get into the production history and talk about how urban legend came to be so the story of how Urban Legend came together begins like most of the late 90s slashers did in 1996 when Miramax released Scream. When Scream hit the big screen and made all the money it did, every studio in Hollywood was suddenly in the horror business, more specifically the horror slasher business. Enter Silvio Horta, a recent film school graduate from New York University who was working at the perfume counter in Nordstrom. Horta pitched the concept for what would become Urban Legend in late 97 to Gina Matthews, a producer who was leading writers' workshops at the time. Matthews liked the story. And the two further began developing the concept before Horta developed the screenplay. Producer Neil H. Moritz subsequently became involved and agreed to co-produce with Matthews and Michael McNaughtle. Horta and Matthews pitched the screenplay to numerous film studios, but none expressed interest in funding the project. In a last-ditch effort at uh, getting the film made, Horta bought the screenplay to Phoenix Pictures, a then-new company who had only produced a small number of films. Mike Vettavoy, a executive at Phoenix, was impressed by the concept, but Horta recalled that the screenplay needed to be better, and rewrites began to take place in late fall of 97. 
and seeking evil director, executive producer Brad Luff scouted potential filmmakers from Australia and was impressed by the then 26-year-old Jamie Blank's small, short horror film, Silent Number, which he made as a thesis film while attending film school in Melbourne. Blanks had initially wanted to direct producer Moritz's I Know He Did last summer and went so as far as directing a mock trailer for the project. Look it up on YouTube, folks. It's pretty interesting. But Jim Gillespie had already been hired to direct it. Instead, Blanks was offered the screenplay to Urban Legend and signed on as director in February of 1998. Jared Leto was the biggest name that the crew wanted for the film. He was eventually cast in the role of Paul Gardner, the student journalist investigating the murders. Matthews recalled that he was cast based on a dark quality he possessed that was at odds with his conventional appeal and because he was already an established actor known for his role on the teen drama series My So-Called Life. Alicia Witt was cast as the female lead Natalie as the producers felt that she was against type and also a strong actress whose previous credits included David Lynch's Dune and the series Twin Peaks which said that she was intrigued by the prospect of playing a survivor character who has to endure extraordinary circumstances. Rebecca Gayhart auditioned for the role of Brenda, Natalie's friend who eventually unveils herself as the film's villain. Numerous actresses were interested in the role, and Gayhart recalled having to go and fight for the part. She read for the role numerous times and performed multiple screen tests before the producers settled on her for the role. Of the supporting cast, Joshua Jackson was granted the role of Damon, the joking fraternity member. At the time, Jackson had earned recognition for his featured role in the series Dawson's Creek. Michael Rosenbaum was cast as Parker, a friend of Damon's. Rosenbaum was just beginning his film career and had recently had a small role in The Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil from 97. Originally, a different actor had been considered for the role of Parker, but Blanks ultimately wanted Rosenbaum for the part. For the role of Sasha, Parker's girlfriend and campus radio host, Tara Reid was cast. Robert England, already known for his portrayal of Freddy Krueger in the Elm Street series, appears as Wexler, a psychology professor. England agreed to the part after being impressed by the concept of the screenplay and was also a fan of several of the other cast members. Loretta Devine was cast as Reese, the witty campus police officer. Devine identified with the role based on her past experience as a dormitory director at Brandeis University, which provided her insight into some of the goofy and dumb stuff they do. Danielle Harris, who had previously starred as Jamie Lloyd in Halloween 4 and 5, originally auditioned for the lead role of Natalie, but was instead cast as Tosh, her temperamental roommate. In the role of Michelle Mancini, the ill-fitted student who was murdered in the opening scene, actress Natasha Gregson Wagner was cast. Wagner was drawn to the part as she felt it encompassed a proper scene that she could sink her teeth into. Brad Dorff was given an uncredited cameo appearance as the gas station attendant who appears opposite Wagner in the opening sequence. Principal photography began on April 20th, 1998 in Toronto. The University of Toronto served as the stand-in for the fictional Pendleton University. The film's production design was completed by Charles William Breen, who had previously worked on such films as Blade Runner. The opening sequence was amongst the first to be filmed as Blanks wanted to possess a completed sequence to the producers early on to assure them of his directorial abilities. It was filmed on location at a gas station outside of Toronto to achieve the effect of the stormed artificial rain machines were used. For the film's final sequence inside Stanley Hall, the screenplay called for a dilapidated locale. 
The production found a rundown building in Toronto that was scheduled to be demolished and were granted permission to shoot there. As the sequence takes place entirely at night, the crew built a scaffolding out of pipe that was then draped in black tarping, giving the appearance of it being nighttime while inside the building. The interiors during this sequence were lit with candlelight, and cinematographer James Chrysanthus drew inspiration from El Norte, aspiring for a ritual-like appearance. Additionally, aerial images from Trinity College School and Port Hope were used for Pendleton Campus. Throughout the shoot, Blank sought to keep on-screen murder muted or implied rather than shown in explicit detail. Several moments of violence written in the script were not filmed, among them a shot of Wagner's character's severed head rolling onto the road after her death. The death sequences in the film, however, required significant technical planning with Sidamore providing makeup effects. Reed performed her own stunts during the character's chase sequence, including the fall over the, the staircase landing during which she was secured by a harness. According to Reed, the stuntman who had performed the scene used a real axe throughout the filming of it. Post-production of the film took place in Los Angeles over a period of less than two months, beginning in July of 98 and to be completed for the film's September 25th release. During the post-production process, producer McDowell returned to Toronto to complete pickups. A rough cut was pre-screened for a test audience in Pasadena during post-production, and the audience response was favorable. The film's score was composed by Christopher Young, who had previously scored several horror films including The Dormant Drip Blood and Hellraiser. Producer McDonald had previously been in a band with Young in the 1970s in their home state of New Jersey. And while Young admired the synthesizer scores such as her films like Halloween, Blanks insisted that he compose an orchestral score which was more in alignment with Young's composing background. Alright, let's run down this plot real quick. A killer decapitates Pendleton University student Michelle Mancini in the backseat of her car during a rainstorm. Meanwhile, at the campus coffee shop, student Parker Riley regales friends Natalie Simon and Brenda Bates by describing a massacre in the abandoned Stanley Hall dormitory, which journalist student Paul Gardner discredits as an urban legend. News of Michelle's murder spreads the following day, but Dean Adams and campus police officer Reese Wilson seem determined to bury the story. Damon Brooks, a jokester fraternity member, attempts to console the notably disturbed Natalie, who rejects his sexual advances while in his parked car at a bluff. When Damon goes outside to urinate, an assailant in a hooded parka attacks him and hangs him from a tree. Natalie flees for help, but Damon's body and car have disappeared when she returns with Reese. Parker and his girlfriend Sasha Thomas assure Natalie that Damon had pranked her. Later, while Natalie sleeps, the killer strangles her goth roommate Tosh to death. She finds Tosh's body in the morning along with the bloody message scrawled on the wall. Distraught, she tells Brenda that she and Michelle, her high school friend, have received probation for causing a fatal car accident after driving with their headlights turned off and pursuing the first driver who flashed them. Paul, meanwhile, investigates local urban legends and discovers that the Stanley Hall massacre actually occurred with William Lexler, now the professor of American folklore, its sole survivor. Dean Adams is murdered next in the campus parking garage, and Reese later finds Wexler's office dis disorganized and covered in blood. Meanwhile, Natalie, Brenda, and Sasha attend a fraternity party coinciding with the massacre's 25th anniversary, during which the killer incapacitates Parker in the bathroom and murders him by forcing pop rocks and bathroom chemicals down his throat. Sasha departs to host her late night talk show at the campus radio station, during which the killer attacks her and her assistant 
and her screams are played live on the air. The fraternity partygoers assume it's a prank referring the massacre, but Natalie, fearing Sasha's in danger, rushes to the station where she witnesses the killer murdering Sasha with an axe. Natalie soon finds Paul and Brenda on campus. Paul, convinced of Wexler's complicity, escorts them away in his car. When he stops at a gas station, and while inside, Natalie and Brenda find Wexler's mutilated body in the trunk. The two women flee through the woods back toward campus as Paul pursues them. They become separated, and Natalie flags down the university's janitor, who is passing by in his truck. He picks her up, but the killer forces their car off the road, pursuing them in a separate vehicle. Crash kills the janitor, but Natalie leaves unscathed and flees on foot. While passing Stanley Hall, she hears Brenda's screams from inside. In the building, she finds her friend's corpses along with an apparently dead Brenda outstretched on a bed. However, Brenda knocks Natalie unconscious moments later. When Natalie awakens, Brenda reveals herself as the killer and acting revenge for her fiancé and high school sweetheart David Evans, the fatality in the road accident Natalie and Michelle caused. Brenda attempts to remove Natalie's kidney, but is thwarted when Reese arrives and holds Brenda at gunpoint. Brenda manages to stab Reese with a switchblade, and when Paul arrives, Natalie gains control of the gun and shoots Brenda, who falls out of a window before leaving with him to get help for Reese. As they drive away, the two discuss how this will later be an urban legend and all the facts will be misconstrued. Paul asks, well, if this is an urban legend, where's the twist? Brenda then appears in the back seat and attacks them with an axe. Paul crashes the car on the bridge, causing Brenda to go through the windshield and into the river below. Later, a group of students at a different university have recounted the events of Brenda's killing spree, during which they say that her body was never discovered. Most of them disbelieve the tale, except for one young woman, revealed to be Brenda, who claims that the story was incorrectly told, and begins explaining how the story really goes. Anyway, let's, talk, let's get to the film. Let's get to the conversation at bay here. Let's get to the film effect breakdown. So, the film kicks off. We've got our opening credits set over a rainy town while various flyover shots of an SUV driving through the rain being shown. Um, Christopher Young's score is the very first thing that stands out when it comes to this film when it starts. It's both haunting and beautiful at the same time and just ultimately my biggest takeaway from the opening moments of the movie. Like Young's no stranger to the genre whatsoever. He's been in the industry since the early 80s. He scored Elm Street Part 2. The first two Hellraiser films, Toby Hooper's Invaders from Mars, uh, the, the Dark Half, Species, Tales from the Hood, The Grudge 2, Drag Me to Hell, the 2019 Pet Cemetery remake, just to name a handful. Overall, he's been one of the industry's biggest heavy hitters with his countless projects over the last several decades, and his music for this film's certainly no exception. And it's Natasha Gregson Wagner who I was talking about before. And then the, the reason I bring that up, or her up, is because her parents. Do you know who her parents are? No. No, I don't know much about her. I know she was in Buffy. That's all I remember. Okay. No. This is this has nothing to do with her career. This is just real life shit. So her mother was Natalie Wood. Or is Natalie Wood, who's no longer with it us. Was. <laughs> she Well, she's been... She, this Okay. So this is the whole... Christopher Walken, Robert Wagner, her on the boat. It's still to this day like one of the most talked about ordeals in Hollywood because of just how 
shady shit was. A lot of controversy, a lot of fucking theories going around. I mean, you can look this shit up. It's, it's you know, Wagner being the last person to be with Wood before she disappeared. All this stuff about her, you know, coroner, her autopsy report from the coroner. Um, something about Christopher Walken. He was also involved and in the love triangle. Look it up, kids. I'm not going to get yeah. into it. I, this it's is not a true crime fucking podcast. No, but, but I, I, I had to bring it up because of just you know we're talking about her. That's obviously it's it's kind of like the, the the pink elephant in the room because her you know it's it's just real life shit. You know. Yeah, it's one of the most infamous like Hollywood true crime things. Yeah. Yes. I, I, of course, I I know what you're talking about. I didn't make that connection initially though. So no, I didn't make that at first. Yeah, she's the real life daughter of, of Natalie Wood. So she's driving this SUV while listening to Terry's college radio program, where she's the host of a pretty popular sex ed show, kind of like a love line from that era. Yeah. And there's a, a caller calling in to talk about how she's been stealing, sorry, borrowing <laughs> her roommate's birth control pills and replacing yeah. them with baby aspirin. Pretty and now funny. her roommate's pregnant and she's stuck yeah, without her roommate. roommate. <laughs> for the rest of the semester. Yeah, I it's pretty it. hilarious. So, Natasha Wagner plays Michelle. I like how her last name is Mancini. Don Mancini, creator of Child's Play. Anyway, she's listening to Bonnie Tyler. to think of fucking old school in the Dan band when I hear this song now like I don't know if that happens to you but I just think of the Dan band it's like I fucking need you more than ever like, old school that, that's one of my favorite moments in that movie no yeah. I think about that and I also think about when I saw this in the theater is that pretty the her singing this song got a pretty big laugh in the audience I remember that yeah it's obviously uh in there for humor and it works pretty well yeah i, I think it's a funny choice you know it, again that's kind of like the scream effects of kind of right, poking right. fun at yourself so she pulls into this gas station and it's pouring down raining brad dorf is the creepy quiet gas attendant with a stutter and takes her credit card and begins pumping her gas up and i'm assuming the rest of the film takes place in upstate new york because the sequence takes place in a small town that's probably somewhere in northern New Jersey since Dwarf's pumping her gas. Fun fact, listeners, pumping gas yourself in New Jersey is fucking illegal. So the camera work in this entire sequence is outstanding. I had to mention that. I love all the crane shots and the yeah. tilting camera work as she's escaping and running to her SUV. That, and that's definitely like one thing that stood out to me rewatching this, like, you know, with more of an experienced eye nowadays, oh, yeah. like, there's definitely some good camera work in this. A lot of good camera stuff and just a lot of great stuff. Like the rain, it's obviously it's a rain machine and shit, crane shots. It's just not stuff you'd expect from a first time director. You got to remember that listeners, 
Jamie Blanks, the director of this film, this was his first rodeo. He's, he's only done a handful of Hollywood films. I think three. So, more on that in a little bit. He's pumping gas, and he's peeping around, looking in the back, while you know, he appears to notice something that's caught his eye, because his whole demeanor changes, and he sort of panics and heads inside before coming back out, and he tells Michelle that the credit card company's on the phone, and they want to speak to her. So Durf's doing this, he's doing the right thing, but the movie's making him out to be the stereotype goofball who can barely communicate, and because of that, movie's gonna movie. So she follows him inside this this office where he, she immediately notices that the phone's been off the hook, so she takes back off to her truck, being chased by the attendant in the process. He can't get her attention because he can't speak, he has a stutter. in a movie and successfully she drives away leaving Brad to finally scream out there's someone in the back seat yeah I, I, go it's, on it's, no I'm just gonna say it's you know it's a little like cliche that he can't talk like that he couldn't just tell her like that as they is, walk away but this moment here when he finally gets the courage to yell what he does it is a fucking moment yeah but Brad Dorf you know he's a superstar like he's awesome he brings a lot to like this little like it could be a nothing uh right part but he brings a lot because obviously it's him and oh, you know yeah. i like to imagine that if his character billy from one flew over the cuckoo's nest didn't die <laughs> it would be this fucking guy because they both stutter <laughs> they're both brad Dorf. i've always wanted to know just what brad's brilliant idea was going to be like i fully understand the setup from a horror perspective but from a common sense mindset, why the hell not say something when she gets out of the car or have him discreetly yeah. point out the fact that she's got an unseen passenger riding with her? Or just There's a, a lot of things note. he could have done differently than what he did. Just write a note, like someone's in your back seat. Right, like, right, right. As you're walking away. Like, Boom, shit problem like solved, scene's over. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. So, Michelle's driving back in, you know, in the rain and on the road in a panic. Still trying to sing Turtle Cups from the Heart to keep her composure. And then we see a black figure emerge from the back seat, carrying a double-sided axe. No fight breaks out. Just as the killer goes to swing her we their weapon of choice, Michelle looks like she's just accepted her fate as the killer swings the axe towards her neck and decapitates her off-screen. But we get a really nice visual of this bloody axe crashing through the window and sort of fading inward using some sort of transitional effect. 
Yeah, it, it, I like the shot of the axe going through the window, but, you know, there's another issue I have with this scene, and it doesn't bother me that much, but it's the whole thing of someone being in the backseat of the car. Okay. I don't know what the fuck kind of car these people drive, but <laughs> when I sit in my car, I think I would notice, like, yeah, if it's fucking, like, Chucky from Child's Play 2, yeah, I can buy that, but, like, when it's, like, a full-grown adult... Uh, you know, I I don't know. I just find it very hard to believe I would sit in my car for any period of time and I'm not realize kind of dark out maybe. Parkers are are black, so how they're gonna see that? I don't know. I'm also tall, so my seat's all the way back. <laughs> so if your motherfuckers in the back uh, floor of my car, I don't you check my be back small. either. Maybe yeah. I should start. I don't know. Let's talk about the urban legend that's featured in this opening scene here. It's from the killer in the back seat. The legend involves a woman who is driving and being followed by a truck or a car. The mysterious pursuer flashes his high beams, tailgates her, and sometimes even rams her vehicle. When she finally makes it home, she realizes that the driver was trying to warn her that there was a man or a murderer or mental escape patient, depending on which side of the story you're talking about, hiding in her backseat. Each time the man sat up to attack her, the driver had used his high beams to scare the killer, causing him to, back duck, to duck back down. In some versions, the woman stops for gas and the attendant asks her to come inside to sort out a problem with her credit card. Inside the station, he asks her if she knows there's a man in the back seat. In another, she sees a doll on the road in the moors, stops, and then the man gets in the back. In another version, the woman gets into her car and then a crazed person leaps out from nowhere and starts shouting gibberish and slamming their hands to the car. The woman quickly manages to escape from them, but no matter how far or which direction she drives, every time she stops, the same crazy person appears and attacks the car. The woman then arrives at the police station and tells the police about the crazed person. The police calm her down and offer to drive her back to her house or a safe place in other versions, but when they go to find her to get her stuff from the car, they find the killer hiding behind the driver's seat. As it turns out, the crazed person was chasing the woman. The crazed person that was chasing the woman was the ghost of one of the killer's victims, trying to either warn the woman or get at the killer. The more you know. So back to the film. We are back at the fictional Pendleton University campus during the evening hours, and the film makes an odd pivot to the radio station, where we're now actually seeing Tara Reid jacking off a microphone while giving bullshit sex ed advice to a caller who's a little scared after swallowing. And I'm not sure why the movie felt the need to cut the Tara Reid after the opening kill and not the film's actual protagonist, but here we are <laughs> it's a little confusing yeah if you're watching this for the first time you might think she's the protagonist right 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 because it's the way movies are usually set up is opening kill cut to the protagonist of the film your final girl not this movie nah Tara Reid it's like a bait and switch oh man then we transition to the commons of Pendleton where we're finally introduced to the main protagonist and Alicia Witts Natalie alongside Michael Rosenbaum Rebecca Gayhart and Jarletta. Rosenbaum's telling the ladies about a local urban legend involving an abnormal psychiatry professor who went around the campus of Stanley Hall and killed all the students on the first floor with a knife before offing himself when he was found. Remember this, kids, because this fucking story is going to be a part of this whole entire goddamn movie. Then they talk about the frat party that he's hosting to commemorate the event when Jared Leto sits down to write off even more. 
I don't know, man. I, I like how Gelato keeps interrupting him with tidbits about the story, which keeps on getting to Rosenbaum. And Rosenbaum does such a great job of blowing it off to make it appear like he's goofing around almost. But in reality, he's like, shut the fuck up. I'm going to fucking slit your throat. <laughs> he's yeah, good. I think, I think, I think Rosenbaum is great in this movie. Oh, yeah, he's fantastic. I mean, he plays, like, the douchey frat boy great. And, like I said, I'm a fan of Rosemont. He he can be, like, intimidating, too. Like I said, like, you know, he was Lex Luthor for a while. So, he's anything but in this movie. He's yeah, like... Oh, uh, I know. I, I have a theory about him and fucking Joshua Jackson's Damon, dude. Like It's he, it's almost weird, like, he's watching... He's got googly eyes for him. Oh, definitely. And it's weird watching this because, like, I'm so used to Rosenbaum being bald. <laughs> oh, God. He, he, he's bald for most of his professional career after this so uh but yeah and leto plays like the know-it-all um you know uh, a lot of people hate jared leto i don't really hate him i just think he comes kind of comes across as a douche a lot of times i don't think he actually is if anything i, mean, I would say he might be an alien it's <laughs> it's it's like the artist in the art it's it's him as a person i think he's a total asshole but the, the roles that he does, you know, I, I, I'm not going to, I'm going to separate the art from the artist because I love, I like some of his work, Yeah, man. but him act, as a person, man. as an individual, like he's not a kind of guy I'm not going to want to get to know or hang out with because yeah. he just totally fucking rubs me the wrong way with all the things I hear about this guy all yeah. the time. I mean, he doesn't bother me that much, but um, yeah, I think he's good in this role. I think it's a good role for him. Like the, you know, nosy know-it-all reporter i think that's a good one for him i think it was a good career move to do this movie because it, it not that it, he needed any help putting his name on the map but he also in the, on the other hand needed help putting his name on the map because prior to this my so-called life was like five years before this and i don't think switchback was going to elevate his status in Hollywood. So he needed a little, not to mention that movie bombed. So he needed something to just help kind of like get his name out there, I guess, or people to remind, something to remind people of, you know, he's his existence, I guess you could say. Um, But no, man, a lot of people saw this and not long after this, you know, he was, back on the saddle i mean fight club was one year after this not even a year exactly one year after this film he was in fight club with his blonde hair and no eyebrows yeah and requiem for a dream i don't know off the top of my head was a year after that in 2000 yeah Yeah, it wasn't long after yeah that's that's the film that made me stand up and take notice that's aronofsky dude can act yeah Yeah. dude can act Mm Hmm. yeah so um. Yeah, you know, other than that, Rebecca Gayhart's crushing on Paul like he's the last guy on the planet, and all she wants is that duck. So oh, on yeah. the way home, Gayhart's Brenda and Wits Natalie stand in front of Stanley Hall, which in present day is abandoned and boarded up, and they shout "Bloody Mary!" yada yada over and over, "Bloody Mary!" until they start hearing screams, which causes them to go into a sudden panic. And it turns out to be Joshua Jackson's Damon, and yeah, Joshua Jackson, Charlie. <laughs> I love from the he Mighty has Ducks. blonde hair. I love it. The fucking got, it's so two thousands. Well, early, there's a reason 90s. he's got blonde hair in this movie. Actually, it's funny enough you mentioned that. And I was gonna save it for trivia tidbits, but I'll mention it now. He was shooting this 
it, before before okay, let me start from the beginning. Prior to shooting this film, he had shot Cruel Intentions, and in Cruel Intentions, his character is gay and he has bleached hair. So he was worried that he was gonna you know dye his hair back to do this movie, and I guess you know Dawson's because uh, he was still shooting that at the time as well. He was afraid that they were gonna get he was gonna get callback for reshoots. So rather than him, you know, going through the whole mess of having, I guess, bleach his hair again, he kept it blonde for this <laughs> film. Nowadays, they'll just CGI it. <laughs> yeah, CGI his hair. No, but he, um, that's why. And I, I think he did get called back, so it paid off. But yeah, the blonde hair is definitely something to uh, reflect on when you think about this I totally movie. forgot he was in Cruel Intentions. Now that you mention yeah. it, and now I remember. A lot of people were in Cruel Intentions. God damn. That's a movie I probably haven't seen since the, the, the VHS DVD days when it first came out. That's, that's honestly a film I have not watched from start to finish in 20 years. I saw that in the theater. So Anyway, on the way her... On the way back to her dorm, Natalie bumps into the suspicious janitor. Warren, <laughs> it's literally or, fucking built as weird janitor. <laughs> he is. He is. It's, it's funny as shit. You all know this kind of character. The goofy suspect whose only role is to subvert viewers' expectations and to make <sighs> it I think he's going to be the killer in the end, but it's just been... He's a red herring. He's a Where's fucking Chris red ben herring. Glover when you need him? He's a cliche. Would you say? Where's Crispin Glover when you need him? Yeah, with his fucking armless character. <laughs> yeah. Then she gets to a room where her roommate Tosh, played by Danielle Harris, is getting plowed from behind to some Rob Zombie. Which is funny to me seeing how she'll be acting with Rob in almost a decade from this point. <laughs> and let me just say, I love Danielle Harris. She's super hot in this movie. Is the cop girl. <laughs> I love her. And I love this scene because she's all like, turn the fucking light out, which drives Alicia with it straight through her bed with her head flo- her fa- puts her headphones on to her drool-esque music to block out the sounds of Harris being spanked around like the cookie woman she is. That's right. We're making Halloween 5 references on this fucking episode, folks. Heading into the next scene, there's a gorgeous shot of the sunrise followed by a really nice flyover shot of the university. Just wanted to acknowledge that. And, uh, yeah, I think it looks incredible and I never really noticed it before. Moving on... We're in Professor Wexler's class. Wexler is played by the iconic Robert England, Fred Krueger himself, as we talked about earlier. And he's talking to his class about urban legend folklore, beginning with the stranger calling the innocent girl from inside the house while she's babysitting. Rebecca Gayhart's laughing at the teacher's expense, so he has her come up to eat some Pop Rocks mixed with soda. She eats the Pop Rocks, but refuses to drink the can of Pepsi because supposedly it killed Mikey from the Life Cereal commercial. You know, <laughs> give it to Mikey, he'll eat anything. Had those before? Yeah, they're Pop Rocks. They crackle in your mouth. Eat some. Thirsty? What's wrong? Something you might have heard about mixing uh, Pop Rocks and soda? Well, supposedly, your stomach and your intestines, everything first. Really? Anyone you know die this way? Mikey, from the cereal commercial. Give it to Mikey, he'll eat anything. Oh. You mean him? 
Mikey likes it. Yeah. What if I told you that this is Mikey? Alive and well and working as an ad executive in New York City. Would you drink some then? And just yeah. So this I, is the part I gotta mention this because the Pepsi can is blue, and I remember when this first came out. Like this was the first movie to feature that blue can because Pepsi had just turned the whole marketing around, and their, their their cans were no longer the white cans with the blue and red label. It was now all blue, and this was one of the first times I had seen that. It's a stupid fucking thing that I'm always gonna remember this film for. Was the can of Pepsi? That's all. Sorry. Anyway, uh, Joshua quick. Jackson, go on. Now, real quick, I just want to mention something. It's kind yeah. of an issue I have with the movie, and it could be down to casting. It could be down to a few things, but the pop rocks and soda—that's shit we did when we were fucking twelve. Like, I mean, not. I, I mean, I'm sorry. I know all college kids aren't mature and everything. I'm glad you these, said something because I was going to say something about that. These are fucking eighteen to twenty-year-old kids, and it doesn't help the fact that they're all cat. Like, they're all actual actors that are, like, that are actually twenty-eight. Like her twenty five or twenty, they're all like I in mean, their late twenties, early thirties, and they look. No, I was just gonna say they all look old as shit, and it just seems ridiculous to me. Like this seems like the, something that should be in a movie that takes place in high school or middle school. I don't know. I just found this part laughable. Yeah, because like all. he's convulsing and seizing up all over the fucking lecture stage, spitting out shit on his face. It's fucking disgusting, and you know it turns out these the class clown strikes again. No exploding intestines, and this fucking scene could have been on the cutting room floor. But the point of it is to build on both the character of Damon being the immature class clown and the whole urban legend culture that surrounds this film. But because of this stupid incident that we're talking about right now, like, yeah, they could have cut that. But I understand why they didn't. Yeah, I mean, they're building up Robert England too. Yeah, like too. another possible Red and Harry. And it's a shame, like, Robert England, like, this is his main scene, you know, and it's a shame about that because he's good. Like, honestly, I like Robert England in this role. I, you know, I wish there was more of him, to be I completely mean, honest with you. At the end of the day, it's just a big, fat fucking cliche, honestly. I mean,. It's not like you can get mad at fucking Joshua Jackson for that shit because it's, it's how it's, the character was written. It's just yeah. Damon. And that's how Damon is. Idea. He's got the immature mindset of a 15-year-old. Anyway, so... The, yeah, uh, after class, we see Dame, the, the dean and the campus officer, Wilson, uh, Loretta Devine's character. Uh, they're confiscating all the papers the school paper due to Jared Leto's reporting on the possible campus serial killer and yeah our main character or our main group of friends are sitting around at the commons again it's like fucking friends and, it and, is and the coffee shop it's yeah. the coffee shop you know they're at the same couch in every scene it's 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 friends through and through and there there's a report on TV about Brad Dorf's character missing after the murder taking place and we see all of them talking about the pox, the actual possibility of a campus serial killer, which, funny enough, is brought up by the actual killer of this film. I just thought that was funny. Natalie goes back into a room where Rumi Daniel Harris is listening to Stabbing Westward. Fuck yeah. Oh, that in, took me back. Yeah. Talking in chat rooms. Oh, shit. She so wants this- to use the phone 
to oh, check yeah. her messages, but she can't because Danielle's online because she's got that 56k modem. Any any kid that's like younger than us is is not gonna know what the fuck is going on nope. right here. Fuck no, but, man. Uh, this 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 whole entire scene screams 90s. But this movie took me down a little rabbit hole after rewatching because I started listening to Stabbing Westward. <laughs> I started listening to Our Lady of Peace. Uh, who else? Dude, Darkest like, Days I, is a fo- is a solid record. Yeah, like I started listening to some of the like similar late '90s shit. Like <laughs> it took. Me I down never a stopped listening sure. to Our Lady of Peace. Honestly, I, they're they're a band that I've been listening to all in all in for the last twenty five years or so. Oh wow! Yeah, I've been listening a long time. Yeah, I still, uh, I still listen to them. Um, so Natalie's looking through her old yearbook, and we actually, she, we see that she had a prior uh, friendship with the Natasha Wagner character, and then Damon comes in and invites her out to go to some place and talk. Claims to be a really good listener, and they get in the car. And there's this bit where he asks her if she wants something to warm her up and then proceeds to hand her a warm can of soda. I thought that was funny. And then he tries to turn the car on and then we briefly hear the Paul Cole song, I Don't Want to Wait, before he quickly turns it off. Want something to warm you up? Sure. And for those of you who don't get that joke, it's it's Dawson's Creek was the, it's the theme song for Dawson's Creek, the show that he was you know a huge fucking star of oh, at that huge time. Show, yeah, huge show. And that song, I don't want to wait. Obviously, is the theme song for that that show. They play that, they do that bit. I always thought it was a funny bit. So Damon takes her to the middle of the woods to talk, and there's not even the least bit. She's not even the least bit concerned that he's going to make a move on her, which is weird. How naive this poor girl is, and I think he brought her all the way know. out there to make sexual advances on her. I don't, I don't even <laughs> know why she went out. I don't know. Her character, you know, even though it's kind of bland, I, it, she doesn't seem like the type that would go for a frat boy. So this whole scene no. just reeks of, we need to set this up. <laughs> I mean, this son of a bitch actually makes up a fake story about him having a girlfriend who died while they were together. Yeah. So she punches him, rightfully so, and he calls her a bitch after she's, you know, rejecting him, and he goes out to pee, and that's when we get our next kill of the film, taken from the hook. This one involves a young couple cuddling in a car when the radio is playing. Suddenly, a news bulletin reports that a serial killer with a hook has just escaped from a nearby institution. For varying reasons, they decide they quickly leave and in the end once they get back to the woman's house the killer's hook is either found hanging from the door handle or embedded into the door itself different variations include a scraping sound on the car door some versions start the same way but have the couple spotting the killer warning others and then narrowly escaping with the killer holding onto the car's roof in another version the woman sees a shadowy figure watching the couple from nearby the man leaves to comfort the killer to confront the killer and then suddenly disappears Thinking that this his date just imagined it, the man returns to the car only to see that the woman has been brutally murdered with a hook. In an alternate version, the couple drive through an unknown part of the country late at night and stop in the middle of the woods because either the man has to urinate or the car breaks down and the man leaves for help. 
While waiting for him to return, the woman turns on the radio and hears the report of an escaped mental patient. She is disturbed many times by the thumping on the roof of the car, and she eventually exits and sees the mental patient sitting on the roof, banging the man's severed head on it. Another variation has the woman seeing the man's butchered body suspended upside down from a tree with his fingernails scraping against the roof. That's the one I'm familiar with. In another version of this variation, he's hanging upside right, right side up and either his blood is dripping on the roof or his feet are scraping against the roof. That's the one I know. In other versions, the man that has returned to the car only to see his bait, yeah, date brutally murdered with a book. The hook embedded in her other tales have the woman leaving the car when her date doesn't come back, only to see his mutilated body either on the car's roof, nailed to a tree, or just a few short steps away. As she starts to panic, she runs into the maniac and is also killed. In another variation of the story, the woman is discovered by police with... While being escorted to safety, she is warned not to look behind her. When she does so, she sees the grisly aftermath of the man's murder. Anyway, Natalie runs to the campus police for help, and this is when we see Lord of the Vine watching Foxy Brown reenacting scenes. <laughs> God, I fucking I love, love her. Pam Greer. I fucking love her. She does this shit in the sequel, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. Isn't she, like, one of the only returning characters? She's the only, well, besides the one cameo at the end. She's the only returning can- uh, person in, the, in yeah. uh, the final cut. So yeah, that's that's the hallmark of a good sequel when you get the one side character to come back. <laughs> I mean, let's talk about it. Have you ever seen Final Cut? I have, but it's been so long. I honestly don't remember much about it. Is that the one where it's like the fencing mask? Yes. Yeah, I do remember a little bit of it. And there's like only one maybe two kills associated with urban legends the other ones are just a killer killing people randomly it (laughs) it definitely reeked of just they're forcing it like just to be an urban legend sequel because the first one made money well they actually do the kidney urban legend you know waking up your kidneys removed in in a thing of ice that's the opening kill from that movie that's the only thing i remember is the (laughs) opening and i like the fencing mask that's not a bad idea Oh, I've always hated that personally. Uh, I thought it was better than this, honestly. I, oh, I like it better than that. I like the Parker. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, it's just that 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 scene, that opening. It's not even the opening kill. I think it's like twenty minutes into the movie it happens. But anyway, it's the first kill, and it's it's promising. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, this is gonna be awesome, and then it's not. <laughs> like <laughs> seriously, it's it's really not. Like there's. Just uh, Joey Lawrence. Whoa, he's in it, and and um, Anthony Anderson's in it, and that's about it. So yeah, um, so let's get back to this film. Then we're back at the Commons with our group minus Damon, who's supposedly snowboarding up in the mountains for the weekend, and that's why he's missing, quote unquote. <laughs> and so Rosenbaum, his, his character Parker, who's been his close number two this entire film so far backs up this story and that's why no one believes Natalie that he was killed by someone in a parka Parker tries telling her that you know he set it up to prank her the actual the movie actually tries making us think that that's what could have happened as well like the filmmakers are trying to add a little April Fool's Day into the plot you know but uh, I mean, we actually see the killer appear behind Damon and just throws the, the noose around his neck and 
then, you know, she, the whole bit where she goes to drive away, and he's hanging and shit. I like the whole sequence. I like the, uh, you know, how Joshua Jackson was on top of the car, and then the car goes forward, car goes it's, back. I mean, it all makes sense It's one of my favorite urban legends, and also, when I first saw this movie, Joshua Jackson, to me, was, like, a big name, so I was thinking that it'd be crazy if he, like, dies so early on and sure enough he fucking does like he goes out pretty quickly in this movie and that's why it's like the movie actually tries making you like it it tries toying with the audience's you know head as well as you know along with natalie because the movie's actually trying to set it up like maybe he didn't actually get killed maybe you know he is snowboarding up and wherever but no he's dead there's dillinger anyway Natalie, in fucking old house. Yeah. Yeah. Natalie calls the resort where the clerk confirmed Damon's group checked in, but they can't confirm whether or not Damon's actually there in person. She goes to the campus library to retrieve a book off of various urban legends, and there she spooked and encountered it. She encounters Taylor Reed, who's checking out the Kama Sutra, so she and Parker can try out all the positions. And there's actually a deleted scene that's on the Blu-ray where Sasha and Parker are actually trying some of the positions, but Parker's more concerned about the barking dog every five seconds, and eventually it turns Sasha off entirely, and then the scene just ends with the dog showing them a severed finger that's been hanging out, and this scene just randomly ends. Like, Does anyone in this film get a finger cut off? <laughs> I don't know. Because the scene literally ends. It's a, it's a comedic bit. But then it ends with the dog revealing to them because they, they react to it. It's it's a severed finger that it's just been gnawing on. I don't recall anyone losing their finger in this movie. It's just, I don't understand the whole the, the whole ending to that scene. It's it's on the Blu-ray. It's it's I'm sure it's on YouTube as well. It's just, it's random as shit. So anyway, um, Daniel Harris's death scene is next, and it's so she's in a goth chat room. Where the person she's talking to tells her that he's inside her room. And it's, it's, she's going and getting ready in the bathroom. They're, they're gonna, you know, hook up. She's like, let me know what room you're in, yada, yada. And she goes to the bathroom and gets all pampered up. And then when she comes back, the response is, yours. And then, surprise, he pops up and, you know, it goes to kill her. And she's got, he's got her mouth covered and, the fucking lights go out because Natalie comes in and she's like, oh, right. She's avoiding them thinking that she's having sex. And yeah. So the next morning, Natalie wakes up and she sees, you know, the, the roommate strangled to death on her bed with the slit throat or the slit wrist. And it said the blood on the wall, it says, aren't you glad you didn't turn on the light? And it seriously looks like Danielle Harris has leather pillowcases on her bed. And I'm just watching the scene like, how the fuck can anyone sleep on leather without waking up drenched in sweat every morning? Yeah, I I just love that this movie has like all the stereotypes from the late 90s, early 2000s. You have the goth girl. You have the mainstream final girl. You have the uh, slutty girl. You have the frat guys. You have the intellectual. Yeah, I mean, you just have it all here. It's all represented. (laughs) It's such a flashback. Oh, yeah. So these uh, these college kids are relentless. While Danielle is being stretchered out, a girl tells the medic to make sure she checks her pulse because it looks like she's been that way for years. Yeah, that's some Yikes. cold-hearted shit. 
Yikes. <laughs> Holy shit. When I saw that, I was like, wow, we're going there. Way to go, movie. So Natalie's um, talking to the dean and Officer Parker. Not Parker. Um, Lord, of, Lord of the Divine. And they're actually... Reese. Her name's Reese. Reese. So they're, leaving, they're leading towards suicide because Natalie never actually saw someone else with her when she entered the room. Plus, her history of drug use all led to this dramatic suicide. These people are fucking stupid. They're super fucking stupid. I swear to God. I mean, who slits their own wrist and writes a suicide note on the wall in their own blood? Yeah. No, it, it, yeah, it, I mean, this movie obviously st- stretches credibility <laughs> quite a bit, but yeah, the characters are kind of dumb in this. Like, the whole snowboarding thing is dumb as shit, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Jared Leto's Paul approaches Natalie about the fact that she knew Natasha Wagner as Michelle, but never brought it up. And she, of course, says it was a long time ago, yada yada, and then mentions Damon being missing, MIA, all that shit, which seems to surprise Paul. And this is when Paul and Natasha go on a wild, not, not Natasha, Natalie go on a wild goose chase for information. First, they're looking for information on Stanley Hall, but the information they're looking for is missing. Then they ask the weird janitor for information on Stanley Hall, and he tells them to talk to Wexler. All right, if there's any truth to Stanley Hall, it'd be in here. So this is where you research all your lurid articles? Uh, reality is lurid, all right? I'm only the messenger. Uh, 71, 72, 74. Uh-huh. That's weird, 73's not here. Hey. How long you been working here? Too damn long. You know anything about Stanley Hall? you talking about did anyone die there please we really need to know talk to wexler so then they break into wexler's office where they find a pocket coat hanging on the wall no it's behind the door in a hidden room with, there's an axe as well. How convenient. Wexler enters and they hide. And when he seemingly leaves, they come back out and he catches him in the act. He's funny as shit. He's standing behind the door and he's got his arms crossed and his like his legs, his even his legs are crossed. And he's like, find anything interesting or something. Like the, the way he turns his head, like the whole bit. It's funny <laughs> as shit. A, I was waiting for a Freddy one-liner. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's kind of leaning on the wall like he is in Freddy World. So Natasha and Paul accuse Wexler of being the killer to the Dean. He then points to Natasha that she previously was a pro- on probation for reckless endangerment and that she should have been a never never been admitted to the school with a criminal record. And he also informs Paul that he's been let go from the paper. Natasha goes to see Brenda while she's swimming. And then she freaks out at someone else that's walking in with a parka. Like, you know, no one else has Parkas to get her attention. She turns and it was a, she breaks the window with a chair. And it turns out it was a fellow swimmer seeing Brenda or, or 
I don't know. It, 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 it. Another scene that could have been left on the cutting room floor is right here. Like I, yeah. I, I, I can't even put it in the, together in the words. It's it's so ridiculous. Like this scene is just, why are we doing this? So in the locker room, Natalie tells Brenda about her incident with Michelle in a Dutch angle fueled fucking flashback. And how it led to the death of a guy who was the same age that they were. I knew Michelle Mancini. We went to high school together. We hadn't spoken in two years. Why? We were in my car one night. Michelle was driving. A story about the gang high beam initiation going around. She wanted to play a practical joke, so she turned the headlights off and waited for the first car to pass by and flash us. When someone finally did, she made a U-turn and started chasing her, flashing her head beams, laughing. I was laughing too at first, but then we started going really fast. I wanted to tell her to stop, but I just sat there. And then the other car lost control and ran off the road. He was our age. By the time the ambulance came, he was already dead. The courts were lenient with us. We just got probation. It's a gang initiation. We talked about whoever... this in our death sentence episode. Yeah, it's like the gang's driving around with no lights on, someone flashes them, yes. and then the car turns around and intimidates them. And basically kills him right and then what follows this urban legend scene is another urban legend scene which is dean adams his death scenes the ankle slasher it's the urban legend about a madman who looks underneath the cars in the parking lots of busy shopping malls and slashes women's ankles so basically he goes to his car uh, after school and his ankles are slashed and then there's a twist Ooh, a twist <laughs> he goes to crawl away, and the killer puts the car in revert or uh, in neutral, and it drifts backwards. And you think it's just gonna crush him. It does that, but it also it, it rams him down into the uh, the tire, the, the spikes that come up for tires, yeah. the wrong I, way spikes. I actually really like that. Like it added a little something because yeah. I think it would have been a little boring if the car just kind of mowed him over. Right. So, I think the spikes definitely punched it up a notch, but come on, bro. Just roll to the side. You can fucking roll to the side without your <laughs> We're legs. all thinking the same thing, Corey. We're all thinking the same thing. Uh, so, Parker's fucking dorm party is next. We see that going on. Celebrating the 25th anniversary of the Stanley Hall Massacre. Typical campus frat party. Parker's feeding his dog alcohol like the fuckhead that he is. And then this random guy is standing around with Sasha... Trying to tell her that the song Love Roller Coaster contains a real life murder scream in the audio. Remember this. And at the party, Paul tells Natalie how he still suspects Wexler being the killer, 
after discovering that he was the sole survivor of the Stanley Hall Massacre. Surprise! And then they share a kiss that Brenda catches before she's seen storming out of the party crying and jealous and pissed off and enraged and elsewhere. Officer Reese finds Wexler's office disorganized and covered in blood after encountering that red herring janitor roaming the halls again. Also, that axe familiar, it's gone. Uh, back at the party, Paul tries telling Parker that he should end the party because there's a killer on campus who's often people based on urban legends. Parker's response to this is a bit extreme. He's going to shame Paul about his writing career, about everybody. A shame that turns into an accusation that he's maybe the killer with a motive of desperation after trying to find the right story in order to graduate. And Natasha even shuns him for being so low and randomly tells him that she needs to go to the radio station and just dips out. Just like that. I'm mad. Yeah, it was kind of random. Go to work. <laughs> I'm, yeah, I'm mad, kinda, so I'm going to go to work. Yeah, it was kind of odd. Like, uh, that whole thing, like, she just left. I was like, wait a minute. She's at the radio station? She's at the fucking party. That was weird. <laughs> We're definitely mocking Scream with this next bit because Parker receives a phone call. And right off the bat, it's the killer with this Wish.com form of Roger Jackson's voice telling him that he's <laughs> going to die. It's insane, dude. It's kind of random. It, it shoehorned in there. I'm like, what? The killer hasn't talked at all yet. Like, now the killer's talking to Michael it's Rosenbaum. Like, Do you want to die tonight? It's like fucking yeah. Kevin McAllister's talk boy from Home Alone 2. Credit card? <laughs> you got it. Yeah, and he claims long. it's the, un, the urban legend about the babysitter, but it's really about the old lady who dries her dog, her wet dog in the microwave. And he's flipping out, goes in the microwave. Sure enough, it's this gross dog carcass that's been microwaved. So he gets all tough and all big and bad and then suddenly runs to the bathroom to throw up. Like, I don't understand what he's doing in this scene. Are you, are you trying to be tough and, and, and take vengeance on your, your destroyed dog or you're you getting sick? you getting a bellyache? And he goes and starts puking, and while he's doing so, fucking killer pops up behind him and, like, 
wraps him around this toilet and then stuffs this fucking no knocks him out and he wakes up sometime later and the, the killer jams this fucking funnel down his mouth and pours all this shit like pop rocks and chemical and like cleaner and, and I assumed shit. it was like antifreeze That's antifreeze what it like. and, and fucking whatever you can think of it's it's disgusting and that kills him so yeah the editing is a little odd it is a weird edit dude at the, at the Jesus end. I like the idea of the kill it's just the execution here isn't that great uh, just with the editing but I like the idea I think it's like a solid take on the um, urban legend because, you know, it's silly. Like, of course it's oh, fucking yeah. silly, but the movie's silly, too. So, you know, I, I think it's fun, but the editing is fucking weird here. Agreed. I at least want to bring up right here, again, once more, two things that stand out. Christopher Young's score, I, I, I just love his big, grand orchestral score that goes throughout this movie. I think it's just beautiful. And... It's, it's old school. And also, just how ambitious Jamie Blanks is as a first-time young director of this movie. Like, he's going big for a lot of this stuff. Like, it's your typical slasher film, yes, but you can really see it in every scene how it plays out that he has a unique vision that goes more... It's, it's more than just the horror. It's just, as a, from a filmmaker standpoint, he's doing a lot of big things that I just want to, you know, acknowledge. Yeah, I I agree with what you're saying. Uh, I think the score and the directing in general are definitely a step above, like, your standard late 90s slasher movie. I mean, you know, Absolutely. it's very easy. It's very easy to be forgettable and kind of generic. I mean, the fact that I'm wa- I was watching it today and I just kind of sat back, I was like, whoa, I mean, this, you know, the, this guy, I'm not saying it's like the greatest but right. this guy definitely had an eye like and definitely had some good camera tr- uh, shots in there so i mean it definitely elevates it. it's de- you know you can tell it's there's some talent behind the camera and there's some talent with the score i would say honestly the score stood out the most to me uh rewatching it this mm-hmm. time definitely like it you know there there's times where it's just either very generic or bad but the, you know usually it, it, if a score stands out it's either good or really good or really bad and this is just really good yeah like much better than uh most of these late 90s slasher movies uh, absolutely got. uh sasha's on the air with a couple who are apparently stuck in the sexual position when the power goes out prior to the power being cut we see the killer killing her programmer first and this is all happening with her on the air Everyone passes it off as her doing a bit to commemorate the Stanley Hall anniversary, but Natalie ain't buying it, and so she rushes to the station to save her. So we get it, and and so we get what I believe is the film's most intense sequence here. It's Officer Wilson. She also hears Nash, Sasha on the air. Natalie and Reese both heading to the same place. Meanwhile, Sasha is being stalked by this killer with an axe. So Natalie gets there, but it's too late. Before that, prior to that though, you know, we, we get this pretty intense sequence. It's it's obviously it's just this your typical chase scene. Every slasher film needs one, and this one's no different. 
and it, it, it checks off all the boxes. It's you know, it, you've got your stunt work, you've got your intensity, and then you've got your kill. Because essentially, essentially, she gets cornered. You know, she cries out, she doesn't want to die, but it's too much. Natalie gets there. She sees the killing take place off screen, which it's actually like, yeah, it's off screen. You don't see the actual death. You just see like the axe coming down. And then we see the killer look over at Natalie and do this little feminine little wave thing so you know and at the time I wasn't putting two and two together but watching it now knowing who the killer is it's like that kind of should have been a dead giveaway watching this movie I feel like if I watched this film for the first time today that would have been a big you know okay Uh, that would have narrowed something some some uh suspects down for me at least so uh Natalie rushes to Paul's place for help and suddenly she's become suspicious because he left the party he picks up you know her suspicions pretty quickly so he's kind of sure that you know he's on her side and Reese also gets there and finds Sasha's mangled corpse so she calls for help and Natalie and Paul are leaving they run in the bend uh, running the Brenda in the truck Natalie comments on a smell they pull into a gas station to use a working phone. And while inside, the two girls, they first, they got to make up. It's like, I'm so sorry, Uber Paul. I'm so, you guys are so cute together, yada, yada. And we hear Rexler's cell phone start to ring from the very back. And figuring out that smell, it's the rotten corpse of Rexler. It does speak in here. Yeah. Natalie, I'm sorry that I acted like such a jerk about you and Paul. You two like each other. And you should be together. So naturally, the girls take off one foot into the woods towards campus. Brenda collapses one at some point, but Brenda continues to run. And we, we hear Brenda scream from a distance. And Paul yells for her, so she continues to run until she's on a road that she finds. And on this road, what you know it, the weirder janitor is the one who finds her. He picks her <laughs> up. Weird janitor. <laughs> what a coincidence. And she sees a parka in the back seat, because again, it's 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 a big conspiracy. More than one person might actually own a parka in this town. And there's a passing vehicle without headlights on, so he flashes his beams, in which the opposing car kids. turns around. <laughs> yeah, it's the killer driving, by the way. It's like how the fuck the killer like how did Brenda find wheels so quickly? To get to the opposing side of the road for this sequence to take place, you know, when you really think about it, like it's a stretch, but 
Anyway, for the sake of the scene, it's the killer driving and turns around, rams them off-road, which kills the janitor. No more weird janitor. Rip. Reese gets back to her desk and retrieves her pistol. And then we see Natalie getting back on campus and hearing Brenda's screams coming from Stanley Hall. So she heads there. And then we get our big final act inside Stanley Hall up in the tower. Natalie finds the bodies of all of her dead friends. Straight out of an 80 slasher film. And then we, she enters a room filled with her broom with lit candles and Brenda's body lying on the bed. While crying on the edge of the bed, Brenda wakes up and knocks Natalie out. Swerve! Gotcha. I must say, Natalie, you have proved your friendship to me. Coming all the way out here to rescue me without even a little pepper spray to defend yourself. Very endearing. Excuse me? I'm sorry, but I can't understand a thing you're saying, doll. Now, if I remove the gag, you've got to promise me that you won't scream. Lord knows I had enough of that with Sasha. <laughs> You're fucking crazy! <laughs> I prefer the term eccentric. But, yeah, I guess you could say I'm a little nutty. Why? 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 You still haven't figured it out, have you? Well, lucky for you, Miss Thang, I've got a visual aid. There I am, Natalie, with my boyfriend, the love of my life. Have you found the love of your life yet, Natalie? Of course not. She's self-involved to bother. Pick ring any bells, Nat? You and your friends decided to have a little fun with that night. You know, David and I were going to get married that summer, right after graduation. He didn't have enough money to buy me a ring yet, so... He got me this instead. But now you took him away from me! Brenda, I wasn't... You were driving, but it was your car. And you were there, Natalie. Now, didn't you tell me that you were having a little difficulty forgiving yourself, Natalie? Well, I thought, as a friend, I could help you out in that department. <laughs> Payback's a bitch, isn't it, Natalie? So, let me get this straight. You mean to tell me that Brenda faked her death by falling and screaming? Then doubled back to the college so she could all, so she could light all 100 candles for this final act, right? Is that what you're telling me? <laughs> or I guess she had it set up. I don't know. I, yeah. I hate the whole trope of the 
the victims are all stuffed somewhere and start popping out. And obviously, it's done in a ton of horror movies. And, and it's got to be Halloween. a big, a big lit area. Like in this case, you have all these candles. It's got to be a big event for your final yeah. act. I mean, I know it happens in Halloween and, you know, I, I think it's passable enough in that movie. But yeah, I've never been a big fan of these reveals. It doesn't do anything to scare me. It just seems kind of silly when you think about the fucking killer setting all this shit up. Right, right. Like fucking Home Alone-esque <laughs> shit. People falling out and crap. Like, it, it's just stupid to me. I, I'm i not a fan of any of these, but I, I do like how she's laying on the bed and double crosses her. That part was okay to me, but the rest of it, ugh. Well, also, like, from every 80s slasher, we get a prolonged monologue from Brenda explaining yeah. why she did what she did in a very over-the-top manner. I mean, she's putting on exaggerated accents, quoting pop culture references. At one point, she even calls Natalie Miss Thang. She explains that the guy that her and Michelle were responsible for killing was her boyfriend slash fiancé. It's a lot. And... So, yeah, typical MO for these killings, it's revenge. So it's, it always reverts back to revenge in some fashion. And then she starts performing another UL, that she calls it UL, not me, the kidney heist. While Natalie's still awake and functional, she also explains that Wexler's body was there to frame him and make him look like the killer going around killing based on his own lessons. Finally, the kidney heist, the urban legend, which is probably the most well-known urban legend. There are a lot of variations of this tale, but they always contain the same plot points. A man slash woman traveling out of town on business and hooking up with a stranger who ends up drugging them. They wake up hours later in a tub full of ice and find their stitched up incisions on the side where their kidneys were located. And then these strangers steal the kidney to sell in the black market for transplants. That's all. Reese shows up, and now she's holding Brenda at gunpoint, and Brenda is not going down so easily, so she proceeds to stab uh, Reese with the hidden switchblade that she had, Paul's the next to show up, he's fucking clapping, he's making Brenda think that he's actually going along with her plan, so he's, he's pouring a little bit of mind games. Very well done. Couldn't have planned it better myself. Really? Oh, yeah. I mean, I thought I was screwed after Natalie here fucked it up for me with a dean. But this, this is just what I need. A few things, though, okay? I'm listening. Well, I'd need some details for my article. You know, about how Wexler did each one. Details only you could give me. Would be great for your career. And we would be so fucking hot together, Paul. And I'd be very grateful. So why don't you give me the gun? I'll take care of the rest. You're cute, Paul. But you're not that fucking cute. I remember when I first saw this, I remember thinking, like, Oh, fuck. He's the killer, too. Like, we have another instance where there's two killers. But no. He's just fucking with her head. Making her think that he's going along with it so that he is unharmed. And uh, ultimately, this is so that Natalie can get the gun and shoot Brenda herself. And then 
she blows this girl out the window <laughs> before yeah, tending the Will's, the, the Reese's wounds. Like she just fucking blows her out that window. So Paul and Natalie are now in Paul's vehicle, driving away while discussing the entire ordeal and how it eventually will all become an urban legend itself. Only with misconstrued information, Paul then asks, well, if this is an urban legend, where's the twist? And surprise! Brenda still being alive is the twist. She appears in the back seat and attacks. Paul crashes on the bridge, leading to Brenda being thrown through the windshield and down into the river. I mean, she fucking flies and <laughs> yeah. gets some serious air and distance with this fall holy shit yeah it looks pretty cool when she goes through the windshield Stunt work but, is amazing yeah it, that looks good but the whole scene to me i don't know it's she's not joke, fucking it's, michael it's still myers funny though yeah i still it, love it, it. Is. <clears throat> and then we return to campus sometime later with a new group of college kids who are also discussing urban legends like the previous group they have the comments it's it's a new batch of friends at the coffee shop and like paul said previously they're talking about the whole thing like it was an urban legend itself recounting brenda's vengeance fueled killing spree the river was such a mess because of the storm it washed away the body thing of it is they never found the body it wasn't there <laughs> True. <laughs> Happened right here at Ashton. I swear to God. Yeah, There's a stupid story here at every campus in the Northeast. Exactly. I mean, where's your proof? Were you even listening? It all keeps getting covered up. Think about it. Who would enroll and murder you? Yeah, and, and you know what? Natalie. She's my old roommate's cousin. <laughs> and Brenda's a girl in that Noxima commercial. <laughs> <laughs> Look, does anybody here believe me? Not a chance. Right. No. I believe you. Thank you. But you didn't tell it right. I didn't. <laughs> Not at all. Okay, listen up, guys. Because this is how the story really goes. And after a meta reference to Rebecca Gayhart's Noxima commercial career, Brenda appears as one of the new students, tells them that she's got the story all wrong, followed by this is how the story really goes. The end. So the Noxima thing. Kids and Heroes. Noxima Girl. Noxima. Big clean, face cleansing company from the 90s. Known for their big hot, hip hot commercials with the who's who in Hollywood. At this point in the 90s. I probably was about two or three years prior to this film's release. Rebecca Gayhart, before she had much of a film career. Was in these commercials for Noxima. So she was dubbed the Noxima Girl. That's what yeah. that reference is. They brought that meta reference into the film Urban Legend, and that's yeah, and that. it definitely works. Like anybody, like I, that's what I. It got a big from. laugh in theaters back in '98. Yeah, people listen watching it today for the first time be like, "What the fuck is Noxima? What are they talking about?" But that's that. That that's what that meant. Um, or what that reference is. So, and that's Urban Legend from 1998. Director Jamie Blanks. Let's move on to our categories starting with trivial tidbits in the form of trivial pursuit it's funny little things used to mean so much to Shelley I used to think they were kind of trivial believe me nothing is trivial Jared Leto fucking has disowned this movie 
<laughs> he hates it. Refuse to talk about it. It's too serious, but I'll do fucking Morbius. I know. I love it. So the killer's outfit is based on the fact that the film was originally planned to be set in the middle of winter. When the weather was too warm, it was decided to drop the weather aspect of the winter aspect of the storyline rather than fake snow and all the outdoor scenes and dress all the extras in winter outfits. But they kept the killer's costume. So there you have it. That's where the pucker came from. <clears throat> the film's opening sequence was shot early on in production because director Jamie Blanks really wanted to show the studio execs a complete section of the film so they all had the confidence they needed in their first-time director and that they were all on the right track. And even though the film is remembered for some of its unique kills, director Jamie Blanks still wanted to keep the tone of the film to that of Hellraiser or the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre where you barely see any. The character of Michelle, her death scene was originally supposed to include a shot of her severed head bouncing towards the camera to end the shot. I'm not gonna lie, that would look fucking stupid. Danielle Harris was a smoker at the time and thrilled to be allowed to smoke while working. She quickly realized that shooting scenes while smoking meant that she was going to have to smoke cigarettes for hours all day while they were shot. She eventually got sick of it and quit altogether. <laughs> Character Sasha, played by Tara Reid, well, originally Sarah Michelle Geller got that role, accepted the role, but had to back out due to schedule conflicts with Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know, at the time of this film's release, Buffy, uh, Sarah Michelle Geller was kind of known as like the random victim in all these slasher films because she was in a, a did last summer, and then she was in CC from Scream Two. So I can imagine if she did this, she just would have been. Yet, another blonde victim for these modern-day slashers. She would have been Sasha. It, would uh, have it was been a like good call on Buffy. A stereotype. Buffy, no, Buffy fucking rolls. Like, that show was great. I I, used, I watched... A, I don't think I've seen all of the show, but I watched quite a bit of that. That was a good show. I love the film. Never got into the show, though. So, um... As a matter of fact, it's funny enough, I was actually thinking about the movie this morning. Daniel Harris and Tara Reid were roommates previously in real life before they shot this film. So they had a friendship on set. Not that they had any she any scenes together. Uh, the SUV driven in the beginning was originally supposed to be a Land Rover. I asked you to put a pin in a conversation earlier. This is where it is. It was changed to the Ford Expedition, the largest 4x4 available at the time because the filmmakers discovered that they couldn't swing an axe inside of a Land Rover. So there you go, Corey. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot more sense. But Gayhart apparently got sick after eating Pop Rocks all day for the classroom sequence. Joshua Jackson used his salary from the film to buy his mother a house. That's, that's uh, so sweet. The film was filmed at the same university as 1986's Killer Party, another campus set slasher. Incidentally, both films feature a costume party at the fraternity, characters being targeted by a masked killer, and an urban legend about murder at an abandoned dormitory. You ever seen Killer Party? No, and never Screen Factory just put it out about two years ago. Well, maybe, it been, maybe it was last year. It's recent. Um... No, I haven't seen it myself either, but actually it's it's kind of, I've, I've seen me getting a lot of praise recently, so maybe I'll pick that up one day when the shout does a sale again, and maybe I'll do a blind buy, because I've been curious about the film myself. Didn't know if you've seen it or not. 
Uh, Joshua Jackson and Tara Reid both shot scenes in Cruel Intention shortly before production started on Urban Legend. I talked about this. This is this is Jackson um, keeping his hair blonde. Yeah. Pendleton University's motto, uh, Amicum Optimum Factum, which in Latin translates to the best friend did it. <laughs> Bingo. Actress Jodie Lynn O'Keefe was originally offered the part of Sasha, but turned it down to take part in Halloween H2O. A lot of people apparently were supposed to be Sasha in this movie. And uh, a terror read. Alicia Witt was cast as the female lead, Natalie, as the producers felt that she was against type and also a strong actress, whose previous credits included Dune from 84 and Twin Peaks. Witt said that she was intrigued by the prospect of playing a survivor character who has to endure extraordinary circumstances. All right. The opening sequence was among the first to be filmed. I talked about this already, never mind. Uh, the body count was nine. And Christopher Young, the composer, said that one of the hardest cues to write for the film was Damon's murder, where he is attacked and then hanged, mostly because of the inner cutting from Alicia Witt to the killer and Joshua Jackson. In the end, Young loved the track. All right. Let's take a walk now to the Critics' Corner to see what they all had to say about the film. So the film has a Rotten Tomato score of 27% based on 64 reviews the critical consensus that says elements of Scream reappear in a vastly inferior vehicle. It's got a meta score of 35 out of 100 based on 15 reviews, a cinema score of C, and a Cisco and Ebert review, which I'm going to play right here. Janet Maslin from the New York Times called it a teenager moviegoer's dream and added it has familiar young television stars, familiar older stars with cult followings, Robert England as the aforementioned professor, John Neville as the dean, an edgy sense of humor, a tricky plot, a tricky plot, and characters too genre savvy for their own good. Maybe there wasn't. Maybe there will be if that. Maybe there will be. Maybe there will be an oversaturation of scream-inspired horror films someday soon, but this one feels fresh. I think this is the. Uh, only positive review that, that I, I have for this actually because Mark Savlov from the Austin Chronicle only gave it one and a half out of five stars spottily directed and lacking the dubious merits of even the Friday the 13th franchise Tiber from Entertainment Weekly wrote of the film proficiently filmed and utterly uninspired it at least features a ghostly lead performance by Sybil's Alicia Witt and a final twist that's entertainingly stupid but why do all the characters have to be such nasty little dorks? Oh, right. Otherwise, we'd care about them. Universally, this is panned all around. Like I've said before, it gives a fuck what they have to say about the movie. In the end, it only matters what fans think. Um, you know, let's talk about what we thought about it more in depth in the form of pros and cons. Robin, get me my legal pad. It's pros and cons time! Corey, you go for us, man. What are your pros for this movie? What do you love about Urban Legend? Uh, 
Well, I think we already mentioned it a couple times, but uh, I think it's pretty strong directing for the genre. You know, I'm not saying this guy's the next uh, Scorsese or Kubrick, <laughs> but uh, I, you know, for for this type of movie and for the genre, I really enjoyed the directing. There was some good shots, some good camera work. And just the atmosphere in general, I think, worked pretty well. It definitely yeah. looked good and felt like a New England college. So I, I give him credit for that. I really like that part. Uh, my next one is the score. Um, you know, again, it's not like an all timer, but it's definitely a step above. As I'm sitting there watching, I was like, oh, I really like this like orchestral gothic type score in places. And, you know, even though this isn't related to the score, I liked hearing the flashback early 2000s late 90s uh music they had thrown in there as well it's definitely like a nostalgia factor for me uh but the score music was really enjoyable um and my last pro is the cast i mean it, it, not necessarily like the writing or the characters but just the cast themselves i think a lot of the cast brings a lot i like having the horror icons in there and dorf and england uh you know bring something to their little parts and cameos and then obviously the strong team or not so much teen, but late 20s at this point, actors right. like Jared Leto, Rosenbaum. Um, yeah, it's just a really strong cast in there, Joshua Jackson. And then obviously I can't not mention Loretta Devine. I, I love her as the uh, security guard. It's kind of funny because like I've always drawn a comparison between her and Cool J, LO Cool J from uh, <laughs> H2O just because he came out so close together and they're similar enough movies that they both have like the the campus security guard <laughs> so i don't know i just i drew that i always draw that comparison in my head right uh but those are the pros for me yeah i've always loved this unique concept of a killer to, you know basing their victims on various urban legend and folklore um it's it's different it's a breath of fresh air for the horror industry or for the horror genre and you know it's just something different and that's me as a horror fan film goer it's all I can ask for there's some really great cinematography throughout this movie thanks to um, Jim Crescentis and it, it just looks gorgeous on film honestly it's a film helmed by an ambitious filmmaker and Jamie Blanks you know you, you can't deny that he doesn't at least care about this movie. Like I can watch this film and honestly see the love that he has, the passion. He, he gives a damn, you know. Um, the supporting cast is strong, featuring a who's who in horror and other works. Uh, you know, like you mentioned, your your veterans and whatnot, and just even young Hollywood at its finest, right here. It's it's the the whole entire cast of this movie it's just lightning in a bottle you're never gonna see a film a slasher film at that with a cast like this ever again honestly it's pretty crazy the fact that he was able to get you know the the, the, the people that he got for this movie it's it's wild looking back at it 25 years later and really great it's got some really good pacing you know thanks to Jay Cassidy the editor the editing's all around really it's done well um, you know, it's it, a team of filmmakers. Uh, it's it's a big team. You've got you know Jamie Blanks, the 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 writer, Silvio Horta, um, who unfortunately is no longer with us. But you know his screenplay, it's it's not terrible, but it's 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 not bad. It's it's 
you know, it's serviceable. Um, obviously, it's it's the dialogue I had the biggest issue with in this movie, but everything else, I you know, I, I like to set up um, the, the the motive and everything. It, it works. It's just the dialogue is you know it is what it is. Um, it's a film produced by Neil H. Moritz, who, if you don't know that name, he's known for like the Fast and Furious franchise, producing that, the Jump Street series, um, a lot of films for uh, Sony, like the Cool Intentions that I know you did last summer's, stuff like that. Um, you know, we talked about the music by Christopher Young. I just mentioned, you know, Chris Anthrus and, and Jay Cassidy for the editing and cinematography. So, you know, it, it, it's a strong unit of, of talent behind this movie. And in the end, you know, they, they, they put out something that it's going to stand the test of time. People are going to look back at this movie for as long as they, you know, love horror. Honestly, it's not going anywhere. So, you know, learn to enjoy it while you can. Anyway, those are my pros. Now we're going to move on to the cons. Corey? Uh, you kind of mentioned it just now, but my number one con is the writing. Uh, yeah, I'm not a fan of the writing in this movie. I mean, it's not god-awful. Like, it doesn't ruin the movie. Right. But it's definitely a weak point, and, you know, you could argue it's a weak point in many horror films, but I think, th- I think this is, like, kind of what separates, like, good horror movies or decent movies like this from the greats and uh you know obviously the writing um nothing special in this movie you know it doesn't make me cringe too much but it's not really good uh my next con is actually the gore i wish the gore factor was amped up a little bit you know i'm not saying i need every movie to be like gross out or splatter film but honestly if you tweak some of the language in this movie it could be PG-13 with the, with just the blood alone. I feel like it could really just be PG-13. Like, you know, the only reason this movie got an R was from the language. You know, <laughs> if you change some of that, it, it's PG-13. Like, it's just, I wish it had a little bit more. You know, I understand, you know, maybe that's what they were going for. But come on, this that's, is a... Yeah, I mentioned that earlier. That's, that's exactly what um, Jamie was, Blanks was going for. He wanted to make no. things kind of like... Psycho or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Hellraiser ask where the, the violence that. is to a minimum. But those movies are oozing like atmosphere and just other yeah, like there's yeah. other things going on there. I agree. And you know, I'm not saying this movie doesn't have any of that, but you, you got to replace it with something else and I don't feel like this did. So, yeah, I would just like a little bit more gore. Maybe, you know, not everything needs to be crazy, but uh, you know, just maybe a little bit more thrown in there uh, just to keep us horror or gore hounds happy. You know, that that's all I'm saying. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the main cons for me. Just those two, the writing and uh, just the lack of gore. Yeah, I got two ones, my, two, two myself. They're, they're different than what you had. Uh, one, you know, it kind of pertains to the writing. Um, you know, I mentioned the dialogue just being wretched. But the, the central characters of this story are really annoying and it points to to the point where we're actually rooting for their death scenes instead of any hope of them surviving. Um, and I've never been a fan of the killer's identity of Brenda. It, 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 if, if you're going to have the best friend of the, of the lady actress be your killer, then at least make it look viable to the audience, especially when your audience is primarily young adult fan, fans of, of, of the genre. I mean... 
how is she able to pull off some of these kills? I talked about it before. Like, how is she able to, you know, actually pull Damon's body weight in order to hang him? Uh, or, you know, Parker, his death scene. Like, he definitely would have overpowered her. So, you know, this is minor tidbits. Other than that, you know, it's, it's, it's hard for me to nitpick at this movie because I feel like I just, in a sense... Have always wanted to defend it. Like I just feel like they, I, I'm rooting for the filmmaker behind this project, and I still am. Jamie Blanks. I just think that you know he was really. I, I, every time I watch this movie, I see a young filmmaker who is trying to make a standout horror picture, and I, I just can't get around that. And that's not a bad thing. And. I, I really think he's got the concept down. It's a really unique concept. He's got some really great shots in this movie. The dialogue is... We need to work on that. But he's other than that, it's, you know, the pacing, we talked about the, uh, the the music, you know. He's got so many great ingredients in in this this stew. Yes, I'm, I'm calling this a stew, but, you know, I'm saying, like, it's... I don't know. It's, I, I want to root from every time. So I don't want to, you know, pick, tear it apart. And honestly, I don't really have that many issues with the movie. So I, I took my two biggest ones and I just mentioned them. So we're going to move on now to what we would change about the film if we could in the form of Mulligan moment. If you had to do it all over again, would you make the same choices? Um, I go. I'll go first for this one. I would do more to make the character of Wexler more important to the plot rather than you know have him alive in a couple of scenes, only to make him out to be the main killer after a, a last minute reveal that he was the survivor of the Stanley Hall massacre. I just feel like the entire character is wasted in this final cut when more could have been done to actually make him a legit suspect in the final act rather than just a couple of scenes and then his character disappears and his corpse pops up like I don't know Wexler honestly should have been this movie's main killer with maybe Brenda helping him since she's got someone you know of her own to avenge or whatever I I, I don't know I just feel like it was kind of a, a, a missed opportunity you know you got Robert England you've got this character that clearly you know, you, what happened to him being the survivor of Stanley Hall? Like you, you're talking about this Stanley Hall massacre for like the majority of this movie. It just keeps on getting referenced, you know, all the time. And and then you actually have this reveal that, oh, the sole survivor turns out to be this college professor from the same fucking college. More could have been done with his character, I feel wasted opportunity i don't know maybe it was the fact that they couldn't get you know england enough days or something i don't know what it was but regardless in the end more could have been done um and i would that's what i would change so how about you man what would you change if you got a mulligan for this yeah i mean i'll keep it short and sweet mine's the same i wish robert england was in it more i think that's the biggest missed opportunity i mean he was great like in the pop rock scene like yeah, right. it was a stupid fucking thing with the Pop Rocks, but he's great as, like, the creepy, uh, you know, odd college professor, and I wish he had a few more scenes, yeah. I, 
you know, obviously watching it when I was young, I thought he might be the killer, but yeah, it, watching it with adult eyes, like, the it, it's not gonna happen, he's just there as a red herring, but I, you know, I wish I got to see him a little bit more, I love Robert England, so, uh, and I think he was perfectly cast and put in this role, you know, just use him a little bit more, I mean, the movie's not that long to begin with, you can have a few more scenes, and honestly, like we mentioned before, there's a few scenes you could even take out without really even lengthening anything, and still have him in there but yeah again like you said i don't know what kind of issue it was or i don't know if that's just the direction they wanted to go but yeah more robert england as wexler would have definitely helped this film and it's definitely it's, uh make it a little bit more legitimate that he might be the killer it's like they they only had him on set for like a day or two because he's only in like three or four scenes and that's it um yeah you know on the other hand you know it, Brad Dorf, we know his character is only supposed to be, you know, an opening cameo or an opening scene cameo. I mean, pretty sure he's un he's uncredited in this movie, to be honest. Whereas Robert England, you know, he's at least got like fourth or fifth billing. So, you know, that's it. All right, let's talk about what our favorite parts of the film were in the form of finger looking good. Finger looking good. <laughs> Uh, my favorite part is short and sweet. It's always been the opening sequence. It's shot perfectly. It features the perfect amount of tension, and it features Brad Dorf, which is always a win. And I, I just, you can tell that you know he's really swinging for the fences, Jamie Blanks, for this in, in this opening scene. I talked earlier about how this scene was intentionally made to. It, it was shot early on, so we can give it to the execs to say, "Hey guys." This is what I'm presenting for you guys. I fucking got this. And you know what? He fucking did. Because that opening scene is fucking sweet. You can't deny that. Um, that reason alone is why I just, I love it. So, anyway. How about you, man? What's your favorite part? Yeah, it's been kind of boring so far. Because my answer is the same. I ah. love the opening scene too. Honestly, it's the only scene from the whole movie that I had a good memory of. Um, you know, before rewatching this, I had bits and pieces. Like I remember the Joshua Jackson car scene. I remember the ending a little bit and the killing, the killer montage or the killer monologue. I'm sorry. Um, but the only scene that really stuck in my head from kind of end or beginning to end was the opening scene. You know, I, I distinctly remember Brad Dorf and the gas station and the ax in the back of someone's car. And I think that's for a reason. It really just kind of grabs grabs me like at the beginning and you know you're sitting down thinking you're watching this stereotypical slasher movie and it, it it does a good job grabbing you and i i think it's got a lot of good style and obviously brad dorf fucking amazing so uh, yeah i agree with you i'll also throw in there it's not that far behind but i i like the joshua jackson death scene you know i've always liked that urban legend that's one of my faves and uh, I think they did it justice here with him hanging from the tree. Yeah, the logistics of it don't really make a lot of sense. But I think it's a well done scene. And if you if I had to pick another one, that would be my second one is, you know, the scene where Joshua Jackson gets hung and dies. I think that's pretty good, too. Yeah. Um, all right. That's a good scene, by the way. Now, let's talk about our fucking movie on here. All right, MVPs, movie MVPs. All right, now, you might think I'm a little biased, but I take my job as a presenter very seriously. I will show no favoritism. I am here to honor excellence. And the most valuable player is... 
who stands out better than all the rest. All right, for me, the MVP of this movie, I'm, I'm giving it to Jamie Blanks. I mean, I, I, I'm giving it to the, the director. I'm giving it to the man who is behind this entire fucking thing. I mean, just for so many reasons. Obviously, it starts with you know his idea and his ambition and just his creativity. The fact that you know he's doing things to show the studio that you know hey i I got a grip on this i i think stuff like that i think moves like that take balls and courage i think the end product is just sweet i i love this whole like i said a whole idea of just slasher with urban legends it's just why wasn't this done before something so obvious but so original and it's like you know it's 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 crazy to me but yeah and you know see what you want about the park i think the park is fucking cool i i I think it's it's you know there's there's something creepy about the park you never see in the face it's just you know pissed off eskimo that's what it is chalk it up to that leave it alone (laughs) pissed off eskimo but yeah jamie's just it's a shame he his career didn't get. I don't know. I I don't I don't want to make it sound like you know he he I mean, he did peak with this movie, but I, I still think he's just a really good filmmaker with a lot of talent. Um, I really can't say the same about he, Valentine. That was his, uh, his follow up. That's the only other movie I know he did. What other what else has he done? That's uh, an Aussie film, Aussie horror movie from two thousand six called Storm Warning. I think that's what it was called. As far as the film that Dimension put out, I think it was directed video. But those three movies are the only thing, the only three that I know that he's done. He might have done something else other than those three, but other than that, those are all that I know. I've never seen Storm Warning either, so. <clears throat> He's my MVP of this movie, though. It's 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 definitely going to Jamie Blanks, for all the reasons I just said. Corey, who are you giving your award to? Uh, my MVP is the girl that calls in the beginning that was stealing birth control. <laughs> <laughs> I respect her. You know how's she gonna find a roommate? I mean, come on, how selfish of the roommate to get pregnant? That's great. Um. But seriously, uh, you know, it's kind of tough for me. Like, I love Robert Englund and Brad Dorf, but they're not in it enough. Like, it's not as much of an impact. Like, they're my favorite performances, but it's not an, enough of an impact. What so I'm Rosenbaum? just going to say, I'm just going to say Rosenbaum. He got <laughs> me. I fucking love him. Uh, you know, it goes Lex Luthor. He's in a lot of DC animated movies as a voice mm-hmm. as well. So I respect the man. I, I think he does a lot of good work. So I'll give it to him in this. I mean, yeah, he's an uh, unlikable douche in the movie, but that's what he's trying to go for. The rest of the characters, what's your fucking excuse for being unlikable? <laughs> he's actually supposed to be unlikable and pulls it off. So I, I enjoy him. I, I, I think he's the highlight acting-wise. Everybody else, to me, is just kind of okay. Like, you know, they're fine in their roles, but he kind of stands out. Like, you know, when I was thinking about this movie before I watched it, I definitely remember Rosenbaum like, oh, that's the one where Rosenbaum has hair. And he's a <laughs> douchey frat guy. So I'll give it to him. I, I really enjoyed him. And, um, 
yeah, I mean, there there's other good performances, but it's just hard for me to give it to some of the side characters. Like he's one of the main ish characters. So I'll give it to Rosenbaum. All right, real quick. It's time to get physical in the form of physical media. Initially, Urban Legend was released on VHS and DVD at the same time, both on February 23rd of 1999 from Columbia TriStar Video. Uh, wasn't released on Blu-ray until July 22nd of 2008 from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment, which also included a commentary track from Jamie Blanks, Sylvia Horta, and Michael Rosenbaum. It also included a making-of featurette, kind of bare-bones, but that was, you know, a, a lot of the films back then on Blu-ray. Um didn't have abundance of special features that we're used to from DVD. Uh, Screen Factory gave it a Blu-ray re-release 10 years later on November 20th of 2018. It included a brand new commentary track with Jamie Blanks, producer Michael McDonald, and assistant Edgar Pablos, which was moderated by Peter Brackey. It also included an eight-part, two-and-a-half-hour-long making-of documentary, feature-length making-of documentary, no less than 26 cast and crew interviews that were recorded, including the director himself, Jamie Blanks, writer Silvio Horta, executive producers Brad Luff and, Mike, and Nick Osborne, producers Neil Moritz, Gina Matthews, Michael McDonnell, chairman and CEO of Phoenix Pictures, Mike Metavoy, production designer Charles Breen, DP James Chrysanthus, editor Jay Cassidy, assistant editor Edgar Pablos, composer Christopher Young, Actors Alicia Witt, R- Michael Rosenbaum, Natasha R- Gregson Wagner, Robert England, Loretta Devine, Rebecca Gayhart, Tara Reid, and Daniel Harris. Unfortunately, though, you would think with this being broken out into multiple parts and it being as long as it is, you can just play it all. Nope, there's no play all button, so you have to watch every part individually, um, which consists of, like I said, two and a half hours. It's still worth it. It's still worth it. And that was the latest release of Urban Legend. Uh, as of this recording, there has been no announcement for a 4K edition. And to be honest with you, I am not holding my breath for one until Screen Factory decides to um, warrant a restoration, which I'm hoping happens in the next couple years. Other than that, that is the history of physical media as it pertains to Urban Legend. All right. Final effect reading. How would you rate this one? Mark? In double feature pairings. Yeah, we made a great pair. Time. Yeah, so I'll give this one a solid two and a half out of five stars. I think it's right there in the middle. I think it's good, but not great. I think it's watchable, but nothing, you know, super memorable. Like, I think it's memorable for us or especially me because it's a nostalgic thing. I think if any kid, younger kids watching this, you know, unless they're watching it, like, ironically, just to see what it was like back in the late 90s. But I think there's going to be a lot of references and a lot of things missed, a lot of misunderstandings. So I think it's really meant at this point. I think the people that are really watching it are going to be people that are our age and older that can kind of have the nostalgic kick and nostalgic throwback uh, to the film. So, you know, it's enjoyable, but I think there's also a reason I haven't revisited it in so long. It's nothing great i mean yes is it a step above like your standard slasher or you know your mid-tier um 
B-movie back then. Yeah, it is. It, it's got enough style and enough things, like I mentioned before, to hold it above. But is it anything like an all-timer for me? Not at all. Like, I, you know, there's, like, I'll, I still would take Scream over this and even some of the Scream sequels over this any day of the week. Uh, but I don't know. I'm a huge screen mark too. So, you know, you don't always have to listen to everything I say, but it's an enjoyable, fun time. I think it pokes fun at good spots and, uh, you know, it's just fun. One thing I want to mention real quick, uh, you know, Loretta Devine's character, uh, Reese, like it would have been funny as shit if she died in this movie. Now you might ask me why I would think it'd be funny if she died in this movie. Cause right. obviously she doesn't die. She comes back from the sequels. Well, her quitty, her witty comeback line when she shoots the villain, it's eeny, meeny, miny, and then she pops up and says mo, oh, and then shit. shoots the villain. If she would have dropped dead right there, that would be on her fucking tombstone. It would just say <laughs> mo. Imagine that. Officer Reese, mo. quotations mo. <laughs> I don't know. I just thought that just popped into my head. I thought it was kind of funny. But yeah, overall an enjoyable film. But, uh, you know, I think if you're our age and you haven't seen it, go back. I think it's worth a watch. Or if you've seen it but haven't seen it in a long time, I think it's worth a rewatch. It's a good way to kill an hour and a half. Uh, You know, fun time. So I I would definitely re-recommend it um, in that fashion. So I'm giving this three and a half stars. I really like this movie. In fact, I think it's one of the best late 90s, early alt slasher films to come out of that era. I think the concept is pure genius and something original. Basing kills on various urban legends really is a fitting idea. I'm surprised it was never done prior to this. The young cast of Who's Who is something else. Collectively, it's an extremely impressive cast, but a lot of the characters are portraying are scumbags and airheads who really don't have a single clue. Alicia Witt's underwhelming as the final girl. She's all emotion and nothing else, really. I also think the Rebecca Gayhart reveal as the killer is the bit. Of a, of, a, of a bizarre one um, but again and I can't stress this enough I really do like this movie a lot and three and a half stars is the final rating that I'm staying by and giving it and all that and I'm pairing it up with When a Stranger Calls the OG one from 79 another popular scary movie based on a well known urban legend 1979 with Carol Kane Charles Durning horror classic folks double feature with both films and that's certainly that's certainly going to be one good night and just like that it is time to put a nice little bow on yet another episode of the podcast and with that that's a wrap on our 25th anniversary discussion on urban legend a film that 100% gets the patent film effects seal of approval one now and many more to follow this happens to be your very first film effect experience then we sincerely hope you had a good time with us and don't forget to leave us a nice little five star rating or honest review via apple spotify facebook or leave us an email film at gmail.com make sure you're following us on the socials for any all that yeah, for many any up to the minute updates news announcements all that jazz film effect pod on twitter the Film Effect Podcast everywhere else and next week on the podcast gang, well the gang's all going to be here as Corey Justin and my kid brother Andrew join me to give 1990's Robocop 2 our signature Film Effect treatment, that's right, we did the first one, now we're doing the second one (laughs) 
Now we're we're getting around to discussing the sequel. We'll be bringing up Robo's shift from gray to blue. The utter ridiculousness that occurs throughout the second act. Frank Miller's involvement with the story. The great Tom Noonan as the film's primary antagonist Kane. As well as the fact that it was all directed by Irvin fucking Kirshner. All in all, it's going to be a very fun episode. I cannot wait to kick off the final month of 2023 with it. Until then... I'm Ed. And I'm still Corey. And this has been another brand new edition of the Film Effect Podcast. Go on and send these nice people home, Sean. All right, gang. We're going to see you all again next time when those theater lights go dim and the opening credits begin to roll. This is the end of your rotten life, you motherfucking drug pusher!